0: For this episode, I'm in Melbourne on the eve of the Australian Formula One Grand Prix. The event is celebrating 60 years since the late great Sir Jack Brabham won the first of his three world titles. He's a legend of the sport who etched a special place in the record books, winning a championship in a car he constructed, a feat that is never likely to be matched in the modern era. Racing is in the family. His son David also made it to Formula One and fought tirelessly to regain and revive Brabham Automotive. He enjoyed a stellar career in sports cars, but it was never a certainty that he would follow a similar path to his father. It always shocks a lot of people when I talk about how I started my
1: career and my kind of life because obviously with dad being so famous as a racing driver and and my brothers racing, it was kind of like, well, that was a, a, a given that that would happen, but it wasn't like that at all. I think uh, two was enough at that point for, for dad and, and we had a farm and um, he really didn't, really didn't want any of us to go racing, to be fair. Some of that's down to the fact that he went through a very dangerous period of racing, lost a lot of friends. And, and you know, he, he retired and he retired mainly because of uh, Bruce McLaren going in 1970 as well as Jochen Rent, two of his mates. Jeff started only four years later. So he was like, you know, not that keen, mm. um, particularly my mum as well. So that kind of that, that holding back kind of went all the way through to me. So uh, he retired when I was five and I was in Sydney and, you know, I, football, soccer was my, my thing. Mm. Um, so I never really went to racetracks or, or anything like that. I was just really keen to do my own stuff. And uh, I was keen on the sport and, you know, even at a young age, just competitive, wanted to do the best I possibly could. I'd be in the backyard kicking a football day in, day out, day in, day out, you know, just always critiquing, critiquing, critiquing. So uh, I was in Sydney and then I went to an agricultural boarding school because I was groomed to be a farmer Um, and they didn't play soccer. So I learned Aussie rules. So that's where I got a sort of passion for Aussie rules. And then when I left school at 16, I, um, I went to America uh, for three months to watch my brother Jeff race. Uh, he was racing in Indy cars in 82, and uh, that was the first probably time I really saw racing proper. I uh, saw a go-kart in, in a workshop. Didn't even know people race go-karts.
0: Wow.
1: Yeah, no idea. Uh, on the farm, we had a go-kart. Bit like a go kart. My, my neighbour and I um, had one, and we we built one together. And
0: sort of we went halves in it. I think did you? Is that right? What did you do, the pair of you?
1: Ah, uh, yeah. Well, that um, we 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 just had a, a you know a Briggs and Stratton with a bit of a steel frame and some wheels, and and, and we just had a bit of fun. That a was basher, that was yeah, just yeah. a real basher. Yeah. Uh, and, and that was just a bit of fun. That was not like uh, an inspiration to go racing. It was only when I went to America the inspiration to go racing kind of sparked inside me. So um, I came back to Australia and and said to Dad, you know what, I'd like to have a go on a go-kart. And and the look on his face, you know, he was stunned, you know. Um, Stunned and shocked and like, oh, no, 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 not again. (laughs) You know. (laughs) Um, And so uh, he wasn't that helpful. So, I, okay, so the neighbour that we had the the wrecked go-kart (laughs) we went to uh, Griffith to have a look at the um, the racing there it was a go-kart trader and it was both of us like, wow, it was just a completely different world to what we'd ever seen before. You know, the, the smell of the castral the you know, the whole, the whole buzz of it. Um, we walked around just, you know, trying to absorb as much as we can and we, we went back and we talked about it. And You know, I was working on the farm, he was working on the farm and uh, we put our money together and we bought a second-hand go-kart and off we went.
0: What was the cart? Can you remember details of it, the chassis, the engine, that style of thing?
1: Uh, don't, it, well, the engine was, we were racing in, um, um, I think it was a Australia 100 or it was like a 100cc Australia class or something like that. Um, and I think it was a Yamaha engine. Mm-hmm. The chassis, I don't remember. Uh, it was just an old chassis that we just picked up and, and off we went really. And, you know, dad came to the first race, which, which was a bit of a surprise. Um, I ended up in hospital. Uh, what happened? <laughs> well, I, I because I'd grown up on the farm, driving cars flat out, sideways, just the thrill of speed mm. definitely was ingrained in me. Mm-hmm. Finding the edge, pushing more, finding more limits—that was always there. Anything I did, mm-hmm. uh, that was kind of a natural thing for me. So when I jumped in the go kart for the first time, um, I, I certainly surprised Dad because because I just had that feel because mm-hmm. I'd done all that training. Mm prior. So I ended up, uh, you know, going around the corners and and passing people and and just had a a feel for it straight away. And then someone went wide on the corner in front of me. On uh, There's like a long bend, uh, U, U corner, like a U corner, and then it was, but it was long and fast. So some guy in front of me just drifted wide and I got on the inside. I thought, well oh, that's easy. <laughs> <laughs> so the next lap, I'm right behind the guy in front of me and, and he starts to slide. I can see the rear starting to go and I'm thinking, oh, here's another. In the inside I go. And of course he didn't slide as much as I thought he was going to slide and I've hit him and and of course we're going around the corner we touch wheels and I've just barrel rolled and of course back then we didn't have like what they have now with all the overalls and stuff like that I I had a pair of jeans and a jumper it was 30 odd degrees and I just just wore a pair of I think I didn't even have like racing shoes it was just you know sneakers you know uh and I ended up on my on my back, and my, my my jumper came up, and my back was just going across the, the tarmac, and and just took all my skin off. So uh, I've still got a scar today,
0: where from, from that, that first very, one, the, from that very first race. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What was the conversation with mum and dad like post that? Because obviously he was not too keen to begin with, and clearly your determination is already showing. So how did that go? I think that
1: I think certainly for my dad, it was like he's done. He's done. let's <laughs> <That's> see, <laughs> <it. laughs> he'll never get up from this. You know what I mean? Uh, Mum hated me in go-karts. She really just did, did never felt comfortable with it. Um, but you know, once I got got better, I got back in a go-kart and, and off I went. And I was um, at a race in Orange and. Um, I like one by half a lap or something, you know, it was kind of crazy conditions and I just like, Mm -hmm. I just went and dad was there. And that apparently he didn't tell me at the time, but he told me after he said, that was the moment I knew that you could do this okay, and that you had something. And that's when he could start to get behind me. So, you know, I had an old cart and I was doing well in it, but he said, you know, you're going to take this seriously, Mm -hmm. you know, because he knew the commitment you had to make in racing Mm -hmm. And up until that point, I really hadn't shown much commitment to anything. I didn't know what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. I was farming, but it's not really what I wanted to do. It was just there on the farm, you know. So he ended up um, saying, look, are you serious about this? I said, yeah, absolutely. So he's, right, let's buy a new go-kart, new engine. And off we went and did kind of like a year and a half of karting, which was fantastic rounding.
0: And before I move on to the sort of the early part of your car racing career, I just want to touch on the fact that you, you know, you, about the farm life that you, that you talked about. Was a Wagga Wagga? And are there, are there any crazy <laughs> airbrain stories from farm life for you before the racing career kind of really took off? You talked about sliding cars and things. You were clearly always driving something on the property, were you?
1: Yeah, and sometimes off the property.
0: <laughs> oh God! I, when I when I
1: think about all those moments where I could have lost my life, it's just scary to think about. It really is. Um, I used to go uh, to the to the local store. Well, that was about a you know about a five six kilometre run between where the front house is all the way to the to the store. Yeah. Probably a bit longer, but dirt roads. Dirt, lovely flowing dirt roads, drifting, you know, all that sort of stuff. And then you get to tarmac and then the tarmac, there was a long, long section leading into a bridge that went into uh, a T-junction where the local Galore store was. And it was on the way back, the challenge that I set myself was how fast could I go back over the bridge? (laughs) 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 Over the bridge and through a blind right-hand corner how fast could I get on the exit of that? By time I got there, you know, um, like the, the glance at the speedo was the was, yeah, the was the was the that glance at the speedo on the exit of the corner was was did I get through there okay? You know, <laughs> so I uh, and when I think about it, I mean. The, the neighbors must have thought we were just reckless because i mean it was just crazy it really was and i i had one moment where i've i've i'm absolutely going flat out i mean i'm not lifting for quite some time i'm in top gear i'm going over the bridge the thing gets light and i'm going into a right hand corner which is blind and i've taken the apex so i'm on the opposite side of the road um and as I've come off, a car's just <laughs> gone like that. And that was my, a little bit of a wake up call that I'd to settle down a bit. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that was, that was, that was, that was one of my stuff. And, and also, you know, my brother came back from England and I'd been driving his car. I actually did a rally in his car <laughs> that he didn't know about the Wagga Wagga rally. And, uh, didn't know what we were doing, but we just had a ball, and so not a scratch on the thing. He comes home the first day, uh, and and I go off to go. To the, I, I always I'll go. I'll go to the. I'll go to the store. You know, thaw, off I went. You know, flat out. And I remember. I remember coming back into where we had the the big main gates on the on the main road, and it was dirt. Obviously, dirt road, and and depending if there was any uh, cattle or sheep in the paddock, I could leave the gate open because by the time I got to the store and came back the gate there you I know no, there was no animals around to come onto the main road and the reason I left it open was because I'd go in there I'd hit the handbrake and I'd I'd flick it one way flick it the other so then I'd go in between the gates and stop get out and shut the gate world well, well, rally championships we're well, talking here yeah on. yeah well, I should have been a rally driver really so uh, and I just loved doing that and and of course I got it a little bit wrong and I hit the strainer post, <laughs> and I and this this like hole in the in the front of this Mazda six two six that we had, and uh, I'd go, oh my god! I mean, it was so embarrassing, and I, I and it you know the 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 um, bodywork was right up against the tire, and I've had to try and pull it off, and you know all that sort of stuff. So by the time I got there, and I walked into the into the kitchen, I went, uh, I've
0: got to show you something. Ari Braben, perfect the uh, the Scandinavian flick through the front gates I love it um I'm not sure if I've got my facts straight here so maybe you can set me straight on this one did you do a little bit of Gemini racing at one point or is that not is that not correct Lee Diffie and I were talking in the lead up to this and he wondered if you might have raced a Gemini at one point or driven one and Paul Morris had raced one at one stage and we couldn't figure out if you'd done a bit of that before you went into into laser racing no um I went straight from carts,
1: and I was actually going to be doing another year of go-karting and then an opportunity came up to do the Ford Laser series that was just starting off and obviously Goodyear were heavily involved and Dad's connections with Goodyear and um, I'm not sure whether Jack or someone found a sponsor... Uh, it was uh, Solar Tint at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, they got behind us. Uh, we got a car very, very quickly. And it was of all v- last minute dot com kind of deal. Yeah. And off I went and did the laser championship with Scafey.
0: It was a great series. That wasn't, I mean, it was front wheel drive, uh, little Ford laser, as you say. Mark Scaife was, was among those that were in it. It was There was some quality racing in that series, wasn't mm-hmm. there? There was, yeah. I mean, it was full
1: on. Um, and. For me, you know, I always remember the press release. They'd already written a press release on how well I'd done before the race. <laughs> so the expectation was a little bit high for me. <laughs>
0: uh, I want to get to that because that raises a really interesting subject. Uh, you're enormously proud of the Brabham name, that's clear, but it comes with this weight of expectation at the same time. How. How does David Brabham balance that? Because I sense in you at the same time you are, uh, you know, your own person who's carved your own career and, and stood very much on your own two feet, but at the same time you're proud of the name. It's quite a challenging scenario really, isn't it? The only thing I, I, I've always
1: sort of sort of made comment about that is I think at the end of the day it's about com- being comfortable in your own skin mm. and that takes a while. I think it takes a while for a lot of people. Mm. Um, but also in terms of living under a shadow of someone who's done such amazing, great things that people just want to talk about that. Uh, and Then you want to have your own career, and you, you're trying to find out who who am I? If, you because know, when I was growing up as a kid, it was oh, yeah, that's Jack Bramson, that's Jack Bramson. Mm. It was like, well, okay, but who am I? Mm.
0: You
1: know, and it, and, it, and it took took time, and you know, sometimes you have to have that confidence within yourself and what drives confidence is success as well. So then, you, you know, you work harder to, to try and get that success to, to create your own identity. So in some way it was a motivator, um, but
0: it also had a, it was a little bit of an Achilles heel as well. Mm. Let's talk about the fact that you you went from carts to front-wheel drive forward lasers, but clearly the open-wheel path was something that you at some point decided, right, I'm going to go that direction because in, in 86 – you get into Formula Ford. That is, you know, everyone looks back on the racing CVs of, of most drivers and, and anyone who's had success has generally gone well in that class. And I still love those things today.
1: Oh, I do as well. I mean, I was at Bathurst uh, the other week and all the old Formula Fords were there and even the ones that I was racing in that in that period, I just love them. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, Formula Ford was such a great category but I think what helped was there weren't that many categories Mm -hmm. not like today There's just too many um so everybody was channeled all the way through into uh Formula Ford from from karting Mm. so you had always had a lot of talent in the in that category Mm. and um you know I remember the first time I got into a Formula Ford it was at Oran Park and we're doing a test and I just felt at home Mm. straight away because uh, cause I never healed and towed properly before, even in the laser, it was like, oh, yeah, a little bit of this. But, like, you know, when you're in a single seater and the pedals are really close and it's, you know, the engine revs differently you know, and the brakes. and uh, But literally within the first lap, I was going down there, boom, 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 you know, it, was, it would just seem very natural. Yeah, yeah, so I could just concentrate on other stuff you know, which which um, which helped, and you know, it was, it was a it was a challenging year because there was I made mistakes and whatever, but um, you know, I also won as as well. I won races at Oran Park I one. So yeah, it
0: was cool. I think there was Surface Paradise success, wasn't there too? Yeah, in that, surface
1: uh, f- Paradise, yeah, that was the first one. That was a funny one actually because when I first went there, um, I did a test with mum. My mum came up with me because yeah. she she was with me most of the time, mm. and then I ended up going out, and, you know, in today's world, you know, you go out and you walk the track and you do simulators and all that sort of stuff. I had a chat to someone on the side who knew the circuit, and they said, oh, yeah, just go down here, and this one's quite fast, and then you've got long left, and that's that's pretty quick as well, and then you got a tight one. You know, it was all this sort of stuff. Oh, yeah, okay, so off I went. By the time I got to that fast left, he mentioned, it wasn't as fast as I thought it was. <laughs> <laughs> So I've gone in and I'm gone straight off the track and I'm and I've got into a ditch and I'm stuck in a ditch and of course there's no one around. There's not like today. I mean there was no marshals or anything. And I'm I get out of the car and I'm trying to get this bloody Formula Ford out of this, yeah, out of this ditch. And so I come back into the pits eventually, and my mum's looking at me like this with grass all over the car and stuff. She goes, Sonny, where have you been? <laughs>
0: <laughs> some great memories there, mate. Fifth, I think, in the in the Driver to Europe series that year. You raced to Van Diemen and, some, as you say, some classic tracks, some of them now gone, Amaru mm-hmm. Park, Oran Park and so on. Formula 2 brought... Experience with more powerful motors and aerodynamics and things like that. You would win the Australian Drivers Championship with a mega, mega drive from 38th on the grid at the Formula One Grand Prix in Adelaide, the support event there. What are your recollections of that? And on uh, the backstory, people can probably hear it in my voice. You were, you had some great words of, let's call it motivation from Dad. Is that a is that a way to describe it? You were pretty, you were pretty fired up, weren't you? <laughs>
1: Oh uh, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. It was, it was one of those situations which was very comfortable, uh, uncomfortable to begin with. Um, something triggered something with a conversation. You go out and you perform at a level you've never, never experienced before. Mm-hmm. So, the the problem I had was we weren't speaking. Okay. And uh, a lot of that came down to the fact that he he was not very happy, as well as my mum that that. You know, my girlfriend was pregnant and mm-hmm. I had all this talent and, and this sort of potential career that he really was, you know, getting himself into at this point because I'd done quite well up to that. And uh, he, he, for him in the old school, it was like, you know, no women, no children. You know, it's, it's a selfish sport and you've got to mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. So we weren't talking. So, uh, I'm standing there in front of him and mum and I'd done qualifying and I was qualified 38th because we did two qualifying sessions and and the car stopped each time. So I never did a time. So I had to start at the back. And then, you know, obviously you think about the race and you think about how you're going to go out there and perform and, um, and you just feel this energy inside you. And then when I was talking to, to dad and mum and, you know, he had a Formula One pass and I said, are you? Better get me one of those one day when I'm in Formula One. I didn't know what else to say, just trying to bridge the gap, you know. And and he just said, Well, the days of you ever getting to Formula One are finished.
0: Simple as that.
1: And, And there was a little silence. And I felt this anger come up inside me. And I just told him to F off. I mean, I just was so, so angry, so angry. I just, I was, I can't, you know, just raging. So I ended up. Literally staying in that angered state all the way till I got in the car, and um, I was so. And all of a sudden, you know, my my whole mindset was different. The way I viewed the race was very different. Um, the motivation I had was ten times higher than what I had previously. Leading into that race, um, the point to prove something to somebody was intensified even more, um, and. You know, I'm sitting on the grid, and I'm, I'm saying to my mechanic, "You go down there and tell those guys, they better get out of my way because I'm coming through." Now, I would have not thought that, other than, to, "Yeah, I'll go through them." But I was so angry mm. that all, you know, my 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 world had changed completely. Boom, bang, bang! I was like, you know, really aggressive and telling people what to do, and blah, blah, blah. and so when when it when the green flag went, I just took off. I, I went from 38th to 17th in first on the first lap. I mean, I, I, every gap. I found I I got you know bang bang bang, um, and didn't nothing touch the car, and, and and I won the race, you know in fifteen laps, um, standing on the podium, you know Jack was there and you know all of a sudden he was my mate again, you know, <laughs> it like, um, and it was it was a it was an amazing experience. It didn't it didn't feel great before, but afterwards. I kind of felt like I'd gone to a different dimension mm. in in life and in, in in driving. That I just it's like wow, I, that was my gift because mm. I I took a lot of what I learned there into my career. Um, but you know, sometimes you need something like that to take you to a place that mm. that then takes you forward you know you see it as a negative to begin with but life has this way of sorting things out and um for me it was uh, i i it was an absolute blessing um so yeah it was a it was an amazing experience and that, and that catapulted me to to europe because um you know dad was there ron um ken tyrrell was watching um you know jack actually got um jackie stewart and and Ken Tyrrell and said, "Oi, come and have a look at my boy because he's looking at the me catching everybody." Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course when I got up on the podium, Ken was there and he said, "You know, Australia's got to get behind this boy and blah blah blah." And um, so that would that really
0: helped my momentum to to be able to get a drive in in England. Let's talk a bit more about that because there was in the in the CV, a bit of racing in New Zealand, South America, but that whole Europe chapter was what what beckoned. Formula 3 in the UK. I think 89 was was a big big year for the class you know 40 car grids names like Mika Hakkinen, ricard Rydell. but there was you and, and another guy who would go on to star in the sports car racing aspect of your career and alan alan mcnish the pair of you were the, the stars that year weren't you yeah we were the ones
1: that were really duking it out for the championship mm. um and it was a fantastic year uh, when i when i look back it was amazing um you know, for me it was very successful because I obviously won the championship and, and the battle between Alan and I and West Surrey Racing and Bowman Racing. And I was with Bowman and Alan was um, with West Surrey and West Surrey had won all those championships, you know, before. So they were the gun the gun team. Um, you know, Senna drove for them and Guzleman and, and lot, lots of other really talented people. And so I was going there um, Against Alan, who I raced against a bit in Vauxhall Lotus before as as Micka Hacken, and, and we were all then Formula Three together in '89. And we had great battles. And halfway through the year, you know, I literally, with I think first four races, I had a 31 point lead in the championship. And we, we didn't have many points then, they not like they have now, yeah. and, and you know, 20 odd points for a win. It was only like nine points. So yeah. I, I had a massive lead. Um, I kind of felt like the team, backed off, was like, this is done and dusted, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, Mugen, who who were for, new to Formula 3 at that point uh, with, with Alan, they, they started to get more competitive and, and starting to beat us and, um, you know, something was going away. Mm-hmm. And we got halfway through the year, and I, little did I know, but my team put in a protest to West Surrey about the Mugen engine. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden... They've protested us on the on the Volkswagen engine that I had, the space Volkswagen, and all of a sudden I was leading the championship with Alan, a joint points leader, and 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 all of a sudden we we've lost, tw- I lost twenty four points because we got got penalties because of this situation. Um, Alan's team, where Sorry appealed, mine didn't. So he kept his points till the tribunal. So he was leading the championship and I dropped to six. Um, so I was 24 points behind him in the championship. And so we got to a place called uh, Snedderton in, in the UK and we got turned up at the race. So it was the first race after all our points had been taken away. And I'm, I'm sitting there working with my engineer and he was so fed up with the politics, it was like he'd just given up. And I ended up, like, talking about the car, and he just said, well, it doesn't matter anymore, does it? And I'm like, hang on, I've got to improve the car. Mm. So that was another kind of one of those moments in time that was a, a, a damn good gift mm. for me because I took charge of the day, mm. where I was always relying on the engineer, and we'd, talk, we'd work together. This time it was like... Okay, we're not going to get anywhere like this. I'm going to have to take over the whole operation in terms of the engineering, what the car is going to do. You know what I need. Yeah, exactly. So I said, right, I want this, I want this, I want this, I want that. And I went and I just went quicker and quicker and quicker, and I got, I got back then. I got pole position by, I'm going to say six tenths, something like that, around yeah. Snedderton, which like is a lifetime. Yeah. yeah. And and it, and it, because I had such a gap, I can't remember the rules, but they ended up staggering the grid because I was so far ahead. I don't know, I can't remember why, but we ended up changing the way the grid was formed because I was so far in front. Um, and uh, it, it showed that I actually had the capability of doing that mm. and and driving that side of it, and I and I I knew enough about the car to, to by then was about halfway through the year to know exactly what I wanted. Mm. Um, and in the race, I just switched off on the start. I was, I was in bloody dreamland and just sitting there. My heart wasn't really racing. It all went, lights went out and I just stalled and everyone went past me. And I'm thinking, you know, think, obviously thinking of the championship. I'm trying to start the, you I know, mean, I've got my hand in the air. Someone's going to hit me. Gonna, you know, it's like, and then I look in the mirror and there's McNish. He'd stalled as well behind me. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: Awesome. What did it mean to you, you know, given the nerve-wracking aspect of, of that to, to ultimately win that British F3 title? I mean, some great names have won it. It is a, a clearly a stepping stone for, for most that have gone on to Formula One. What did that mean? Well, at the time,
1: um, Alan was declared the champion until yeah. the, the court hearing, which was actually uh, at the beginning of the following year. Um, and... Uh, that, up at that point, we were heading into the Macau Grand Prix, which that was the former three World Cup. So, you know, England had a championship, France had a championship, Germany had a championship, Italy had a cha- championship, and you know, you had Schumacher, you had Zanardi, you had um, obviously our guys. Then um, you had some of the F one stars come down: Eddie Irvine, um, um, epic Julian, lineup. Gi- yeah, I mean Julian Bailey, uh, and and so. The motivation again. Another, you know, I learnt about a lot about motivation <laughs> uh, up until that point, and it was another trigger. It was, li- it was literally like uh, that championship's mine. I felt so angry. Mm. Um, <laughs> in there was a journalist called Mark Skewis and he was writing for Motoring News, and he sent through a fax of a story he was writing about Formula Three, and and I started reading it, I and I can't tell you how angry I got. <laughs> Alan McNish, the deserved winner, you know, he dominated the championship, all this sort of stuff. And I'm reading this and I'm, and, and Lisa's, Steam, yeah. <laughs> Lisa's watching me and I'm like, this, and I just, Curl it in a ball, and I chucked it against the wall. That I'm like this, like that, and next thing the phone rang It's Mark. He was just taking the piss out of me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> it worked. He yeah, wound. He wound you up. Yeah,
1: he was. But like, you know, that was like, you know, going to. Um, that's what it meant to me. You know, mm-hmm. so going to Macau, it was like, I've got to win this. Mm-hmm. I've just, you know, if I don't win that championship in the courts, I've got to, I've got nice. to win this one. And I ended up winning it, mm. you know. So to beat all those guys at that point and then obviously being then declared the champion um, uh, later on that or earlier on that next, next year, um, you know, just you've got a super license. You could go and do Formula One. Mm. So it meant, it meant a huge amount to me, um, and it was a you know you talk about being under the shadow of Jack and things like that. Um, I think when I won the F three championship, that was that was helped me to become who,
0: who being comfortable with who I am and the success that I got until that point. Just share with people that that may not know. I mean, uh, Macau in F three terms is a is a signature race. It's, I mean, it's still a signature race meeting globally now. But what is it like? to pilot one of those cars successfully at speed around there because it is just brutally unforgiving. Macau Macau. Yeah, it's one of the great
1: street circuits Mm. of of the world. It really is. Um, And, you know, always at Macau there are accidents, Mm. always. And we took off on the start. And I think I qualified sixth or eighth or something like that. Mm. Um, Wasn't a great qualifying. Hadn't been there before. So some of the guys up front had been there. Some hadn't just didn't quite get it together and qualifying uh but we knew we had a good race car mm. and um took off down the straight got a reasonable start so i was about fourth i think going into into the first big tight corner at the end at the lisboa and i just everyone's on the right for a right hand corner and this is where um i guess another another lesson sometimes you get a sense about something mm-hmm. and you got to you gotta go with it. Mm. And then what I did is I, I, I got a sense that there was gonna there was gonna something happen this just doesn't feel right. This does not this is gonna be a disaster. So I pull over to the left where you should be to take a right hand corner. I'm the only one kind of there amongst us. And of course everyone's piled in, there was a big accident and, and I ended up having getting caught in the accident, but my car was not damaged. So it was just a pile up, no one could move. Um, so by the time they pulled everyone apart, there were some big guns got damaged. Mm. You know, McNish's car was up on top of somebody and, you know, all this sort of stuff. Um, so that that intuitive kind of, mm, just, this just doesn't feel right, mm. helped me kind of win that race because some of the, you know, McNish, he didn't even start. So one of my main competitors, gone, gone. you know what I mean? Mm. So um, Michael, Michael Schumacher and I, ended up sort of duking it out for the first race he was first I was second and then in the second race um uh I, I again kind of my I was probably a bit tentative in the in the first corner but it was fine and, and I I ended up saying to the team before I said look just drop the rear wing I just want as fast as I can be on that straight I'll just deal with the corners myself don't worry about it you know um and I was like a rocket down the straights and got into the lead and off I went and 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 kind of won it but um certainly if i think for even today winning macau is such a big deal but back then it was it feels it just felt
0: enormous mm. yeah You're very much you can tell that listeners will be able to pick this up in the conversation and you've talked about the motivational aspect but you're, you're very in tune with the mental side of the of the racing game aren't you and w- when did that become a thing for you really and and uh, you know you are clearly you took charge before in the formula three example you gave in an engineering sense but but clearly you 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 grasp the fact that the mental game is vitally important, didn't you?
1: Yeah, uh, I can always remember my dad. He didn't give a lot of advice. He didn't really say a huge amount. Because it was really like, well get on with it. Mm. You know, learn yourself. Mm. Which was a great way of doing it. Mm. And he would just put his finger to his head and go, David, it's all up here, mate. Mm. It's all in the head. He couldn't articulate it, but he but he was damn right. And, and of course I've I've expressed some of those moments mm. For me, you know, sort of having experienced what it's like to take yourself to a whole different level mentally, mm. and what are the key mechanisms that help you get there, mm. um, the drivers that, that do get you there. So, um, I, as my career went on, I started to un, uh, I started to research it more and, and read books, and you know, whether it was um, you know books on science or books on on spiritual stuff, it was it, it was a whole mixed bag of a first I, th- I was a thirst for information because yeah. I had experienced stuff and it was not always easy to carry that into every race mm-hmm. you know um, and I started to understand for me was how important um, to find something lots of things that that were, were motivating not just to win but what out of the added mm-hmm. stuff that would mm-hmm. just take me to that kind of next level um, and I, I yeah it was it was a it was probably a, a 15 Year journey towards the end of my career, where I really not just started to think about myself, but it was also about the team and my teammates, how the energy of that team is operating. You get a sense of the energy in in in, in a room. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, everyone has thoughts, feelings, emotions. Um, they all play a role in what's going to be created next. So my, I started to look much more deeper into the way people thought what people were saying to me, how they were saying it to mm. me, how the engineers were talking, how my teammate was talking. Is he confident? Is he not confident? You know, if he wasn't confident, how do I help him get confident? Because mm. if he's if he's not confident, his world's going to be such, he's going to take the, the direction of the car the wrong way because mm. uh, he'll interpret the world differently to me. Mm. Um, and I, I had one of those experiences where... I was in Formula Three Class B before I went into the main game, and I was testing uh, at Alton Park, and I was in a Rolt and and my teammate was in a Rolt and he had a slightly different car to me. Like the, the rear end was uh, the you know the gearbox was lower, and and it, theoretically it was a better car, mm-hmm. um, but I was like a second quicker than him, and and the mechanic on his car came up to look. Can you just please jump in the car, mm-hmm. just. Please, you know, he's complaining about this. He's complaining about that. And we just don't know, you know. So I jumped in the car and I went a tenth quicker in his car than I did in my car. Um, And his interpretation of the world and my interpretation of the world, my confidence and everything was so so different to his. But he was complaining about stuff that I wasn't. Mm. So that was, again, that was kind of like, well, when you're in that mindset, you're going to interpret the world differently. Mm. You're going to then come up with ideas around that world that take you down the wrong path. So when you get yourself into a, a much clearer, more focused, more confident state of mind, your interpretation of the way you think is different. Mm. So and that changes your outcomes. So then it was, okay, my outcome is I've got to win. So who've I got to be? Who am I being now? Mm. What's my mood? That was the biggest thing for me. What mood am I in when I go into a race? Mm. That that was for me the key and what's the mood of the team what's the mood of my team mate? you just have to watch you have to feel all that sort of thing um and I worked much more with the team than I did myself towards the end of the career because I, I knew that I was okay um and I would work on myself always and then work with the team and, and just get that level up that confidence up that mindset
0: where that becomes champions you know what I mean mm-hmm. So you get your break in Formula One at around around 1990, but I think you might have – did you test it in late 89? When was your first test? Where was it? What was your first experience like in a Formula One car? Share that with us.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, it was kind of weird because I did obviously run the F3 stuff and then um, team a team called Middlebridge contacted me Um and I went off and um, had a chat to them, and then an Eddie Jordan offered me a test, uh, and I tested at Silverstone. Um, Did it blow your mind? Was it everything you thought, or no, was it just was, this was Formula Three Thousand? Oh, yeah, so this was Formula Three Thousands because obviously that was the next step. Formula One, I didn't even think about Formula One. I was like, well, okay, done that. So what's what's next? F Three Thousand. What's the opportunities there? I didn't have any money. I had to find something, mm. and then um, Eddie Jordan gave me a test. Complete disaster, was half dry, half wet, went out there on slicks, it was cold, spun, half spun, so I'm going sideways down the track and I hit a curb and it bumped up and it bumped down. It wasn't much of an accident, got going, I came in the pits, but it punched a hole in the tub, end of test, done. Um, So that that wasn't clever. And then uh, Middlebridge, I did a test in an old Lola and that went really well. And so, next thing you know, I'm signed up to do Formula 3000, and Damon Hill was going to be my teammate. And we had brand new Lola's coming, and you know, it was just you just knew this was going to be a good year. Mm. The the, the car was fast, the the engines were good, team were good. Me and Damon together, who I'd raced in Formula 3. um, And I didn't know at that point how good he was going to become because he didn't show it in Formula 3, kind of struggled a bit there. he suited the much bigger cars than he did the smaller ones. Mm-hmm. And I was really looking forward to it. And um, the Formula One, uh, Middlebridge bought the Brabham Formula One team. Mm. So uh, they were heading off to Phoenix, uh, the week of Phoenix. I think it was like the Monday of Phoenix. The phone rings. Uh, David, how would you like to come over and race in Formula One at Phoenix for the first round of the championship? What? <laughs> <laughs> Where the hell has this come from? And I, and I just thought about it for a moment. So I like oh, hang on a minute, I'm not fit enough. I know I'm not fit enough to drive those cars. I don't know the track. I don't know the car. I just don't didn't feel confident that I could I could do it justice. So I refused. I said I just don't think I'm I'm going to do it justice right now. So I'm not going to do it. Um, which kind of like someone's just knocked back a Formula yeah, One what drive drive. What the <laughs> hell is going on here? Um, and so that was it. Didn't think much of it. And we were getting ready to, to test the brand new cars. Um, they'd already done two, two races of Formula One at that point. And um, I get called into the office and they said, right, we're closing the Formula 3000 team down to focus on Formula One. Really? Oh, Christ. And then you're starting to think, right, well, this is pretty late in the season. How am I going to find something now? You know? Mm-hmm. Then they said, we want you to do Formula One. It's like, wow. Wow. So I either go and find a job or go and be a Formula 1 driver. Yeah. Mm, yeah. I think I'll be a Formula yeah. 1 driver, you know what I mean? <laughs> didn't, didn't take much arm twisting. No, exactly, yeah. So um, obviously then it was a case of going to the team and doing a seat fit. Um, I sat in a BT58, uh, which was a pretty good little car. Yeah. they you know they'd been on podiums that year in Monaco and other races. Uh, and it was, it was just a tidy little package. Got in the car at Silverstone, sitting there. You know, the engine's revving, got the Brabham emblem on the, on the steering wheel. And it was just such a moment. Surreal. Yeah, it was such a moment. You know, my first time in a Formula 1 car is a Brabham. I mean, it was just unreal. And then I think I probably did 10 to 15 laps, you know, and the getting feel for it. And the thing's like, oh, this feels fast, you know. Um, but I was, you know, I was getting quicker and quicker and quicker. And, uh, but then by the time I got to sort of lap 15, my neck was falling off because the G forces were so much higher than all I was used to, and and you know I hadn't trained my neck enough, you know, um, so I did that test, and it was off to find a coach, you know, a gym instructor, and said, "Mate, you got to get me fit because this thing's like killing me," you know. Um, and I was fit doing F F3 three, and F three thousand wasn't too much of a problem, but F one was another another jump, you know. Um, but you
0: know, I did it. They were happy with the test. I was happy with it. Um, can you, remember, can you remember the power plant and and the sort of horsepower that was a was it a three and a half liter Judd V eight What was it? What was the engine that was in it at the time uh, It was a Judd V ten V ten
1: It was quite peaky yep. Didn't have a lot of torque um which was an issue but the whole that whole year was a bit of a disaster to be fair because you know I didn't realise <laughs> it, that how much in trouble Brabham were when I, when I got there the
0: 59 wasn't the 58 was it, it was
1: no no I mean god we, we tested um breath with the 58 and the 59 the 59 was two seconds lap slower, so it was a dog basically mm-hmm. um Sergio Rinland, who's a good mate of mine, designed it. I mean, we always—I always take the piss out of him every time. I say same, I and he always says, well, every time he talks to people, and I'm there. Oh, I—I I made him the worst Formula One car ever." You know. Um, and you know there was no money. the wind tunnel we had problems with the wind tunnel the the gearbox, which was the first transverse gearbox that, that the team had done, uh, didn 't come until halfway through the year, so we had last year's gear um, rear end on with a new front end, and it was all the geometry was wrong and, and you know it was just it was just wrong, really wrong. I mean you just don't go racing like that and, and of course I was <clears throat> pretty naive going into Formula One in many ways. Mm-hmm. You know, I wasn't worldly enough in in some sense because everything was not easy, but you know, I had everything around me and everything was working. Went into a you in know quite political situation. No money, a lot of stress. Mm-hmm. You know, you're in the, the world's eyes now. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm Australia's next Formula One driver, mm-hmm. you know, and from Alan Jones. So there's a bit of weight of expectation there. I'm a Brabham, I'm in a Brabham. Um and it was a tough year. Didn't qualify for half the races. You know, it was you're either in or you're out because we had 30 cars going for 26 lots. Um, the first time I tried to qualify, uh, I, I, I missed the first session and I missed the second session. Every time I went out, the car stopped because it was a brand new car. We never turned a wheel. Um, and I missed out by three tenths in, in qualifying. You know, and my first Formula One race... Was was Monaco, which was the next one. So I managed to qualify at Monaco, which was a huge feat mm-hmm. back then. Uh, I think Michele Alboreto didn't even qualify. He was behind me uh, in the footwork. So it was really tough at the back, really, really tough. Um, and as the season went on, I, I didn't get new bits. I was getting Stefano Modena's bits from what he wore out because there was no money, you know, and, and he was the number one. I was the number two, which is fine. I, I get that. Um, but yeah, I walked. I walked out of there scarred massively,
0: mm. you know, and it, and it, it took a bit out of me. Did the challenge was that compounded by the fact that you know nowadays bringing money to a race team is such a significant thing and you talked about the fact that there wasn't much money there before did you have to bring or garner funding to help what you were doing was that an issue too what about the political aspects what were the eye-opening parts of that because it is i mean it's been written about hasn't it they talk about it being the piranha club and it's a it's a really tough environment formula one isn't
1: it yeah it is i mean i've never brought money to a team um uh, never had that kind of funding or anything like that. Uh, so I had to find my way through and find drives where I could. But certainly in, in Formula One, you know, I kind of felt like when I got there, half the team wanted me, half the team didn't. Um, half the team didn't because they were Brabham, they were fairly successful, they'd done a pretty good the year before. Obviously, mm-hmm. I'm standing on the podium at Monaco. is a pretty good deal, yeah. you know what I mean? Um And so they felt they wanted a a more experienced driver than someone like myself. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was the second youngest driver on the grid at 24. So for them, I get it, you know, I didn't at the time, but I I get it now why, you know, there would have been people there. So, well, you know, it's great, but, you know, we need someone with experience. (laughs) Um, And I didn't have it. And then at the end... I think I was made a bit of a scapegoat in some way. Um, I didn't keep the drive and then I had to go off and, and find something else. So I ended up going back to Formula 3000 because there was an opportunity to have a free drive there mm-hmm. and also I had F1 experience and they were quite keen for me to be in the team. Mm-hmm. Um, so I led the team. I had a Mexican teammate who brought the money um, and then um, I ended up doing a... Uh, the XJR 15 um, sort of little series they had with Monaco, Silverstone and Spa mm-hmm. against all of these good drivers and Derek Warwick was there and stuff and he was a works Jaguar driver at the time and we went to Monaco, and Derek was first. I was second, and I was I was you know standing in the pits after the race, and feeling pretty chuffed with myself. You know, I you know I think about going down the inside of one of those corners. It was Turn One, I think. I should have done it. If I had it, I would have won. <laughs> but uh, it's funny how these things stick in your mind. It's like that was one that was missed. But that was my fault. Um, but you know, I must have impressed uh, Tom Walkinshaw because then and then and. Um, he said, how would you like to test the XJR14, which was the silk-cut Jagger in the 91 World Championship. Um, I didn't know at the time they were looking for a replacement for Martin Brundle because he was dovetailing between F1 and, mm-hmm. and it's because he'd gone back to Brabham. And then um, it was like, okay, well, I'll go and do a test. So I rang up to, to say, well, what about this test? You know, I'm kind of keen to get in and see what this looks like. And then they said, well... Um, there's no point in you testing if you don't race for us. Hmm. Are you offering me a drive? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and they said, well, yeah. So it's like, right, okay, because I have got, had commitments with my former 3000 team. I said, well, yeah, I'd love to, but I've got to talk to my team first just to clear tell them, it. yeah, clear it. you know. So I went to the team and they, just, and, you know, they didn't have any money, so I was like, we can't keep you you know so I was like yeah go for it you know it's a great opportunity for you so then uh, I ended up doing the deal for for Jaguar and becoming a works Jaguar driver alongside Derek Warwick and Teo Farby so I ended up driving one and finishing in the other because he only had three Tom would only pay for three drivers not four (laughs) so um, my first race at the Nürburgring I finished first and second (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> just explain it. <that. laughs> well because it was a three hour race and I would start with one car so I started in Derek Warwick's car took off off we went and I and um, I actually had Keke Rosberg in front of me in a Peugeot um, Michael Schumacher was there in the Mercedes, Mercedes with Carl yeah. Van Lenger and all those guys um, who I raced in F3 as well and and Heinz Harald Frenzen yeah and, uh, uh, I, I, you know, we qualified up front. Um, the, obviously, the two main drivers did the qualifying. And so this is my first race as a Jaguar works driver. And I'm following Keki and he's spewing out oil. And this oil was just coming up all over my screen. So I'm running third and I'm thinking, well, i got to pit soon. And next thing he spins off and I, and I, and I look up ahead. And I can't see Teo. Teo's gone but he wasn't gone like up the road he'd spun off on the oil as well and he was behind me (laughs) so all of a sudden I'm in the lead um I can't see where I'm going do I come in do I stay out you know and it was all very confusing so I decided I could just see enough I couldn't I couldn't see exactly like straight in front of me because of the oil in fact I think Schumacher behind me um, came in to clean his screen and I was one in front of him. So was there a little gap in the windshield or something? How did you see? Well, I can remember going down the main straight on the pit pit straight and I'm looking to the left to see the markers because I couldn't quite see on that side. Where, you know what I mean? It was just like that the whole time. Uh, and I led up until the, the last lap of my stint and someone got past me yeah. and then we came in. So I did my job because if I... Come in and got the screen. I would have been behind, and now Teo was catching me at a hell of a rate because I couldn't see where I was going. If I could have seen, I would have just disappeared. That thing was so fast. Um, and then I get out. I am waiting for an hour for Derek to do his, uh, no, for Teo to do his double stint. Derek's now gone in to finish the race with a double stint. So I have a rest for an hour. I jump in Teo's car and off I go. And it was a very emotional race for, for Derek because it was the first race that he um, had done after his brother got killed. Mm-hmm. And we we're all quite close. And, you know, my, you know kind of that was, again, that, that picking, trying to pick the teammate up, mm-hmm. trying to get them motivated and focused and, and, and so forth. So that was a, another um, kind of new experience for me to, to be in. And um, so the, the cars finished first and second on the road. So it was nice for Derek to win. Um, so by that time, we were kind of one, two, and it was like, no, keep that as as the thing. So Derek, Derek won. I think they wanted to do it for Derek as well. Um, and so it was time to go up onto the podium, and it's like, well, I'm not standing on the t- number 2 step I'm going to stand on the number 1 so that I finished first and second in the same race yeah I
0: love it um, they are an iconic car in in sports car history tell us a bit about what they were like to drive and and a bit of the if you can remember some of the the data on the engine and the and the package generally what was it like uh, the car
1: would have qualified in the top 10 of a formula 1 race mega that's how car, how, that's how fast the car was mm. it in pure like say Full downforce spec was like ten thousand pounds of downforce. No, no car has that today. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, it was phenomenal. Uh, it had a it had an aerodynamic issue on the front. Um, it, it just understeered too much. I don't think I ever had the car snap on me on the rear. The, the rear was just absolutely locked to the ground, which gave you so much confidence going in the corner. But all all the tweaking, all the, all the setup was around trying to get more front. Mm. And uh, every time we got closer and closer to the ground with the ride height, you start to get the, the, the front porpoise, mm-hmm. so jump up and down. And it would jump up and down. You know, I mean, it was quicker in the corner that way, but on the straight, the thing was just bouncing, You know, just up and down, up and down like a porpoise. And so much so that uh, if I was driving with my visor up and I wanted it up, I had to put tape on the visor to stop it from falling down because of the, the bounce of the right. Yeah. The bouncing. Yeah. 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 Um, and when I first drove the car, it was in a, in a small track in the middle of France, I was just blown away by, by the performance, the Ford, um, three and a half liter. It was the HB that the, the Benetton team were using that year with, with, um, whoever was there was, um, who was it? PK. I think it was PK and stuff like that. um, Oh, and Schumacher, because yes. Schumacher yes. Sh- shot across too. Yeah, 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 That's from Jordan. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and of course I was I was with the Judd in in Formula One, and then I jumped in in this with the with the uh, Cosworth, um, and it was like wow. Okay, now I know That's this. Nice. Yeah, yeah. I knew what I was missing the year before, big time. Um, so the package it was Ross Braun's last car that he ever designed, and the tunnels on it were massive. The ground effect tunnels were massive. Uh, But, you know, we talk about how impressive that car was. But when the new um, Peugeot came out, Mm. by the time we got to the end of the season, that Peugeot was a rocket. That thing just drove away from us. Mm. Michelin tyres had had just taken a massive leap forward. Mm. The, the, The Peugeot package, so the Peugeot ended up obviously Towards that, to the winning Le Mans, two thousand and two and two thousand and three, mm. my brother Jeff drove it in two thousand and three, and that was even quicker, obviously, than what we were driving. And in, in, well, I mean, that must have been unbelievable. I can't yeah. imagine what those things were like. Um, but just to be a Jaguar works driver, working with a professional team, it had budget. We went testing. All of a sudden, I I I saw what what a proper team kind of really looked like. Because Brabham was in disarray; it had no money, and it mm. was you know we did no testing and. Bits were falling off and all that sort of stuff. So, all of a sudden, I went from the worst to the, one of the best scenarios. Mm. And and that team in in, in F one would have done really well. You know, they were just at that kind of level. Mm. Uh, and obviously, Ross <laughs> Ross proved that. Mm. Um, and uh, it was it was just a great experience. And and having done F one and that that helped me, I think, just pick up lots of drives along the way because I had that experience with those people and those type of cars. And then you know, like I said, I've never had money to pay for a drive. Mm. If I had half a million dollars in 91, I could have got the Jordan drive. Amazing. Yeah.
0: Mm. Yeah. But I couldn't find any money. So the word you used before was a bit scarred from that, that first experience. Mm-hmm. So clearly doing this sort of stuff gives you a bit more confidence mm-hmm. again. How did the door open to get back in, in Formula One? What, what transpired there?
1: Well, I did a couple of seasons of Formula One. Uh, sorry, uh, sports cars. I went to Toyota the following year, and then '93 was a bit of a barren year. It was um, you know, not a lot of drives out there. It was a good time to get married, <laughs> 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 so we got married. Um, and I did a few races, and of course, then there was I, I met up with Nick Worth who. Um, was trying to put a Formula 1 team together and obviously I'd had all that experience in Formula 1 and sports cars I was the perfect fit for them and it was my only way really to get back because I kind of felt like it was a bit unfinished business in Formula 1 because I'd had I in terms of my career I had stepped up a lot from mm-hmm. when I first got to Formula 1 having been with Jaguar and Toyota and you know I was just a better driver mm-hmm. uh, so I felt like I could you know that was, was my time to be in Formula 1 in mm-hmm. a sense um, but it was a difficult year, yeah. you know. Um, get money, big problem. Um, going from race to race, hand to mouth, and not having the money to develop. Nick was 28, I was 28. He was the designer, the team owner, everything, you know. Right. Um, credible brain, but, you know, inexperienced in that field, mm-hmm. you know. And you are
0: playing in the in the biggest possible yeah. field in motorsport.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, it, 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 you know, it was was a bit like um, being a duck in, in a lion's den, you know what I mean? It's just, mm. so I ended up obviously during the year, but you know, it was a tough one. We lost Roland, which wasn't great. Um, difficult for the team to get through, but we did and got to the end of the year and that was it really. I mean, Formula One was done for me. I, I needed a, I I'd, I'd tasted sports cars and life outside of that, which I quite enjoyed. Mm. Um, Went to do British touring cars with BMW because Nick was very close to Paul Rosche, mm-hmm. and and he said, look, I'll talk to Paul, see what I can do with BMW, and he did. Went and met up with Paul Roche and and Paul, yep, right, let's just do a deal for you to race in in
0: in England, CTC, mm. and, and British touring cars, yeah. Mm. If you don't mind, can we just finish the the SimTech chapter there, ninety four? I mean, you talked on the passing of Roland Ratzenberger, and, I mean, it came on the same weekend that, that Etten Centre passed in, in Italy. I mean, it, it still to this day made sense chills up the spine of people that love their Formula One. How did you deal with that? And you are to be credited because for the rest of the year you showed incredible leadership to help the team come out of that and to keep going despite all the challenges you you detail there before.
1: Yeah, I mean, when I think back, I think all those experiences I had previous to, to that in terms of the mindset and everything, uh, I understood that a lot more. So when obviously when when Roland died and Ayrton died, that whole weekend was, was just black. It was heavy. Um, but, you know, I chose to race the next day after Roland died, um, you know, and he had a problem with the front wing. Um, it collapsed and so you know i'm going into the race and you know is this thing going to happen to me as well you know so it was it was tough um i can remember going down down the straight towards where roland's going and the adrenaline is, is pumping in a different way that it would normally do out of fear oh yeah also i mean all sorts of things going through your mind um where my, i would be flat out, but my, my actually leg was, was bouncing with adrenaline. I had no control over my leg. Uh, I could keep it flat on the straights, Mm -hmm. but my, my leg was just, just moving. It was just like pumping with adrenaline. It was just bouncing. And I had, you know, it was just the weirdest sensation. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, you know, I was lucky, I was lucky myself that, that race, because I had an issue in, in, in there and um, went off the racetrack and luckily I didn't hit anything like other than a bunch of tires, Mm. you know, my steering column broke. So it was like, yeah, it could have been, could have been horrendous. So um, difficult weekend to get out of there with confidence. You know, again, it just, your your, your whole, the whole demeanor about the team and, and yourself is just at such a low and you've got to pick yourself up. And the only reason I raced, was for the team because we did warm up and I said I'll, I'll make a decision after warm up and I did warm up we actually did quite well in warm up normally we were down the back mm. for obvious reasons but I don't know if they put you know less fuel in the car to make me feel good I don't know but we were we were in the top 20 and and at, like thing we thought 15th 16th which was really like, we'd never been that high mm. came into the pit and I just noticed this black dark cloud that was over the team it, it just shifted slightly there was this a bit of hope I just sensed hope a little bit of hope in the team mm. And I thought I I've gotta I I've gotta got create more hope I gotta to, gotta to do that for the for the team mm. so I didn't race for me I just raced for the team and off I went to to just keep things going as, as Roland would have wanted to you know as long as you're safe just you know you're a racer get out there and race that's what you do mm. you know uh, it was unusual it is unusual for a team to race after that; they would normally pull out. Mm. Uh, but it's a choice, um, and you know, my choice was. They said, "It's up to you. What do you want to do?" You know, so you've got sponsors, you've got this and that and that, and you know. But and it's like, my I didn't really think about that too much. It was about the team, mm. about the people. You know, so that's that's what I did, and, and you know, managed to we managed to get through to the end of the season. Um, but uh yeah, it couldn't continue. They just I couldn't bring the funding or anything that other people couldn't, and that was it.
0: The diffuser is at the rear of the car, providing downforce
1: by using the airflow under the car's floor. That diffuser creates nearly fifty percent of the car's total downforce.
0: It had a taste, as you say, of sports cars and that in your career, mate, we'll get to a few of them. You've driven some amazing things. Just quickly, the BTCC chapter, that was, uh, you know, the British Touring Car Championship, people still in the mid-90s and and the 1990s full stop remember it very fondly. It was ultra competitive, wasn't it?
1: Oh, yeah. There were so many manufacturers involved Mm. and the level that they were at was high. And for me, going into it from Formula One to a two-litre touring car was a major shock mm. of how slow these things were. Just, just diametrically opposed. Yeah. They're different, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, they didn't stop. They didn't turn. They didn't, I mean, I am mean, going testing, just overshooting the corner all the time. They just couldn't do it. Um, and I went... To BMW just as they were changing teams. So Schnitzer were always doing British touring cars. Schnitzer went to Germany. The German team, Warthoffer, team Warthoffer with Johnny Cicotto, who's who was really at that time their number one driver mm-hmm. and he'd won the German championship the year before. They wanted them to go to 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 England. And I was going to be Johnny's teammate. Mm-hmm. So I had a great teacher in that sense, a mm. uh, great guy and, and fantastic driver. And, and you know, very much the heartbeat of BMW as far as the drivers are concerned. But uh, it wasn't a particularly competitive year. It was their worst year that ever had in British touring cars. So they had their works team, their works driver and me. I think he, I think Johnny finished something like 16th in the championship and I was 17th you know he was only one point ahead of me which but. was
0: unheard of because I mean Steve Soper
1: Jochen totally. Winklehock they had dominated hadn't they totally yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean it was very uncharacteristic of, of of BMW and of course I hit them right at that point point. and I you know it, to get your head round those cars it was difficult the slower you went the faster you went basically which was against my Mm. upbringing in a sense because in Formula 1 you just got to go for it and you, you got to really commit into the corner and you, you feel that grip and it helps you get around the corner. Every time I did that in the in the, in the the BMW thing went slower you know. So it's a great story of, of John Cleland who won the championship in a, in a Vauxhall there went and did a test betting in the brakes finished betting in the brakes, did a lap time and then could never beat it after that you know what I mean? It was just kind of a strange kind of way and having so used to being driving bigger cars it took my it took me a while to get my head around it mm. but I had some really good races you know we qualified not great but in in the racing was just so good mm. and the, and with the rear wheel drive against a lot of the front wheel drives in the races you know we could we could have a bit of a go mm. um I I went to uh Knock Hill uh we were there all week testing um took my family up there with with Sam uh, and he was 11 months old and Race morning, we get up, and we always had this routine, you know. So, barricade where the where the kettle is, boil the kettle, get warm up his milk for his milk, and all that sort of stuff. Okay. I jump in the shower. I'm getting ready for the for the race morning, and uh, next thing I hear is screams, and um, I jump out of the shower to find out what's going on. I'm, I look, and Lisa, Lisa's looking down the corridor, um, and there's Sam in a pool of boiling water with steam coming off his body. And it's like, you have gotta be getting and like he was screaming, Lisa's screaming, and like, you know, you just think, What the hell is going on? So I picked him up and put him into the bath, just just poured cold water in there. Um, till the and and luckily like, normally when you're in England <laughs> or Scotland, it dribbles out back yeah. then. There was yeah. no pressure. But this thing had loads of pressure, it was filled up the bath really quickly and it was cold water and and I'm and I'm holding him in the in the water. Trying to assess what the hell has just happened and what 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 damage has done to him, um, you know he's he's screaming, Lisa's still screaming, and um, I said, well, you 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 have got to you know bring the bloody ambulance. you know you got to we got to. So she's gone out the door. She started screaming help. Um, the doctor for BMW, Doctor Vincenzo totter was actually not far away from us. No, it was Johnny C- Chocot. No, sorry, Johnny Chocotto. That's right. Johnny Chocotto was not that far, in his and his girlfriend at the time. So they've come in. I've got nothing on. I'm sitting there with my with my uh, with my son in the water, and because I'm looking at him, and I'm looking at his feet, and his skin is just peeling off his feet, just coming off in the water like this. Um, oh. And anyway, so the ambulance came, and off we went. And this is race morning, you know. Um, we get to the hospital. Um, in Glasgow so we had to go to the other side of Scotland and they went to the uh, the burns unit now that burns unit happened to be the best burns unit in the country wow. which was good um, you go in there and and you just don't know what what's going on mm. and so they've, they've got him and they wrapped him up and done all sorts of stuff and he was like a mummy you know he's just wrapped up like a mummy and then all of a sudden the, the doctors turn around and say, well, there's not much you can do. You may as well go back to the race. It's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and then because your brain's all over the place, you don't know what to think. And it's like, okay, okay, okay. So we managed to make contact with, with BMW and BMW then got hold of the, the, um, the Series. Uh, the Series sent a helicopter over to pick me up and I missed, I missed the first race on the Sunday, so I actually joined for the second race. Wow. Um, whilst Sam and Lisa were at the hospital. Awesome. Yeah. Um, not really knowing if I should be there or not or whatever. Anyway, I got in the car, and it's always been something I've been able to do. If, 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 if there's been this distraction in the past, like leading up to a race, I've been able to kind of focus on the race mm-hmm. and... actually had my best result that year which i finished fourth um and again i had that same adrenaline pump with my leg where i'm flat on the straights and my leg is just literally doing this i'm just just shaking just shaking and i'm trying to you know trying to quiet my leg down and and uh focus and and you know you get into the race and and the car was fairly competitive that weekend and um and i you know i ended up finished fourth, but I missed the first the first race mm. um, Now I was back to the hospital, and we were there for two weeks with him yeah
0: amazing one of the most successful sports car races ever you look at your name and it 's linked to aston Martin to Bentley to all these. Very impressive names. What's been the secret to your longevity there? What was it? You just clearly enjoyed that endurance form of racing and getting the good team of people around you and and off you went, basically.
1: Yeah, I think obviously up until that point, I'd had quite a lot of experience, obviously going through Formula One, in and out of sports cars. And then obviously once I settled into sports cars for the long term, Mm -hmm. uh, I was very happy in the environment. Um, I loved the long races, um, the challenge of it, the challenge of getting the team around you um and with you and with your teammates because you've got two teammates you've got to work together in in getting a setup and making sure the seat's comfortable um you know you really do work as a team more than you did in formula one it was all very much about you and all that sort of stuff and then when you get in the sports cars you can't think like that Mm. and then um I just thrived in it and you know I just always always trying to um critique and get better at anything that I that I was doing. Um, I was consistent. I could I could turn on a quick lap if I needed to for qualifying and I could be consistent in the race and I was consistent every time I got on the car. So I had very few off days as such. I had them, you know. I'm not saying they you never had them, but I had very few of them. So I was reliable um, and, of course, you know, I was very, always very much into the development of the car, making the car work for you in the race, not you having to work it, you know, mm-hmm. uh, particularly at Le Mans or any 24-hour race. If you haven't got a fast race car that's comfortable to drive, you're, you're toast, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me as a as a driver, when I think back, you know, I can think back being on the farm as a kid, not thinking about racing but just picking up one of my dad's trophies, um and I used to climb everything so I used to climb up on the roof my mum was doing the gardening and I'd s- start speak doing a speech thank you thank you fans thank you you know <laughs> I got one of the, uh, what trophy I had but it was probably one of dad's you know Grand Prix winning trophies or something and I had it up in the air and I'm you know just being an idiot you know so um you know to think from there to to, to the, the career and and you know racing for, for Bentley, racing for Jaguar, racing for Aston Martin at Le Mans, you know, winning with Peugeot, winning with Aston Martin, uh, standing on the podium at Le Mans, which is one of the most incredible feelings for any driver. Um, yeah, pretty pretty cool, actually, very special.
0: Is there... I can remember walking with your late dad around the house on the Gold Coast and stopping at various bits of memorabilia and having wonderful chats with him about things that sparked his memory. And we looked at this photo. uh, It was a painting, actually, of a race that he'd done uh, at Reims in France, and he recounted various things about it, and it really had stuck in his mind, you know. Is there a race for you in in sports car terms? Clearly Le Mans is is a highlight. Is there a race and a car that is you know, that you have a soft spot for in your heart, mm-hmm. the one that sort of stands out the most? Whew. That's a good question. I've driven a lot of cars, yeah.
1: a lot of really great cars. Um, and each had a different character about them. Um when I think back, if somebody says to me, What's what's what car was impressed you the most when you got in it? I guess it was the XJR14. Mm-hmm. In '91, that was that was impressive, Um, but I've you know been in situations um, which I think I thrive on more than being a works team. I always I did drive for works teams, which was great, but my enjoyment really came from driving with teams that weren't meant to win, but we won. Okay, that that was that's what I loved uh, because that was the greater challenge, and um, like, uh, Jord. well, Panos days, you know, when we were beating Audi. I mean, there's no way a Panos, a front engine Panos, should be beating the Works Audi team in sports cars. You know, when we went to the Nürburgring 1000, we were racing against BMW, Works teams, and an Audi, and we beat them mm. in a front engine American monster on German soil. Mm. Could you imagine the conversations the next day in Germany? <laughs> what is going on? What is this shitbox? Us for? You know, it's like it's like Quite satisfaction. You know. <laughs> oh, my mate, yeah, and that's what it was. I mean, you know, I, I like I said, I, I I loved being in the the sort of underdog situation where where the the challenge is greater to win, um, and you really need to work your butt off to 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 do that, and. um when I think back of some of those moments where, uh, driving the, the Zytec, uh, 675 cars, like a P2, mm. um, at Le Mans in qualifying. And this thing was probably one of the best little cars I've ever driven in terms of round a corner, mm. dead slow on the straight because it was a 675 car. But, um, I, I actually, if I go back a bit and I think of, Bentley. When I got to, when I went to Bentley and raced at Bentley, I looked back and I think didn't do a great job there. Why? Because I put myself under too much pressure. I'd been with Panos for a while, and it was all starting to get a bit. You know, all starting to dive down a bit. Um, they got a, I thought they got a lawyer to come in and bloody run the team, and it ended up being a complete disaster. You know, um, and then what happened was uh, I got the Bentley. I got the Bentley deal. And I just put myself under too much pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, I, well, I just wanted to over. Imp- I wanted to impress them, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I was getting caught in traffic, and I was putting pressure on myself, and it just got worse and worse and worse. And I learned a lot um, there in terms of when my mindset was focused on traffic, I got traffic. Really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when my mind was focused on clear laps, blah, 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 I got clear laps. So once the race kind of got into a rhythm, I just let go. And that was another thing. Just let go. Just let go Mm -hmm. and just be the driver and and just go with the flow. And, um, yeah, all of a sudden, (sighs) my times were better and I was doing a better job and wasn't getting so much traffic. Okay, later the race, you have a little bit less traffic, but I wasn't getting caught up like I was before and, and getting frustrated with it. I just allowed too much frustration and stuff. So I went to the next year with this little 675 car and I had a completely different mindset. Uh, my preparation was different. Um, I really, that's when I really started to really, um, whatever it is I wanted to achieve in the race coming up, I would I would just go through the events in my mind. And I'd have clarity. I would have. I wouldn't put any negatives in. It was always very positive. I'd see myself go through this qualifying lap where I absolutely was perfection and no traffic, which is like no rare in Le Mans Don't to get a lap here yeah. that there's no one in front of you and you have to wait or something like that. So, um, I got there and and was ready for qualifying. The car was good. Um, Did the first run uh, on a set of race tires, soft race tires, and we were P11, which was fine. And that was because we had qualifying tires back then. So put on a set of qualifying tires, and I went off, and it was time for my lap. Now, I had already pre planned this is going to be a clear lap. I come out, I come down the start finish line, I see this car drive out of the pits in front of me going into turn one, and he just got right in my way. And I'm I'm steaming. You know, man, you, God, you, what are you doing in my way, you know? And I'm shouting and, I, and I'm I'm right up next to him because he didn't look in his mirrors, mm. didn't get out of the way. And I'm, my fist's going up in the air at him like they're swearing at him. And I'm going down the Molsan straight because I couldn't go fast because we, we had a set of qualifying tyres. So luckily, I had fuel enough to do a few laps. And um, all of a sudden I go, hang on a minute, mindset, mindset, mindset. What mindset are you in? No, 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 you're... You're pissed off. You're frustrated. Mm. Frustration's not going to give you a clear lap. So I let go. Um, and then just got back to where I was before. And I went, you know what? I asked for a clear lap. That guy got my way. That meant that my next lap is the lap that's clear, not this one. Mm. And I went off and I did that next lap. And I saw one car on the straight went past him. I saw no one else. Crazy. And I went from P11 to P1 overall, ahead of all the P1 cars, ahead of the works, Audis, and everyone who'd been out there on qualifying tyres. And I was probably 20k slower on the straight, 15, 20k slower on the straights. So I took myself to, I was able to control and balance the the emotions and, and what was going through my mind. And then just having that, going back to that sense of, no, it's going to be fine because I'd already pre-programmed it. Mm put it in my mind that's what's going to be that was a gift because you know all of a sudden I was seeing it completely different to being angry it was like no I'm I'm grateful because you've got me in the way that means my next lap's going to be clear so I was in a really good state of mind and I and that lap I I just watched myself I was you know when when drivers or, or competitors talk about being being outside the body and just kind of watching that was one of those moments Wow. so did that happen often or just, just in that moment? Uh, I think I was able to replicate that more later in my career, mm-hmm. but it was uh, it, just getting to that point where I was able to let go, and that's half the issue these days. Mm-hmm. Isn't it? I mean, just letting go, let mm-hmm. life do its thing. Yeah, just mm-hmm. let go. Um, and once I let go, all of a sudden it was like, I, I, I was just watching myself and I and and I the car was so on the edge and I went past the start finish line and it was funny because my wife was in the, in the in the pit garage with everyone else and they're watching watching p11 and all of a sudden my name disappears and she said there was just this this no one knew where you'd went because <laughs> no one was looking at the top and then someone yelled out He's first, you know, like, and the whole team has just erupted because, you know, obviously it wasn't expected that I would be P1 in the little 675 car beating everybody that should have been, I should have been like 10th, you know what I mean? Um, And so that from the year before with Bentley to that was just a quantum leap in and again, just evolving mentally to get yourself into a place that you can create that kind of
0: magic. I just want to touch back on the Bentley uh, aspect of your career for a second, because there have been times, I guess, where it's been a little bit of a tug of war in terms of, of national ownership, shall we say? So, born in England, raised in Aussie, we're proud of you as, a, as an Aussie for what you've done, and no doubt they are in the UK too. But mentally, the EU race for them, put the Union Jack on your race suit, and eagle-eyed fans will remember it against your name on the, on the car and stuff. Was that something that you were? okay with? Were you miffed about it? How did you feel about all that?
1: Uh, it was, good question. It was um, quite important for Bentley mm-hmm. that they, that car had British people in it. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously I would say um, I would have probably liked to have had the Aussie one on there. Okay. Yep. Uh, Cause that's kind of what I had up until then. But it's been an interesting one because for me, you know, are you British? Are you Australian? You know, this conversation. If I'm here, if I'm here in Oz, you know, they say, "Are you British?" And I'm, I'm in England. They say, "You're Oz." You know what I mean? So I could never really sit anywhere. <laughs> um, and in later years, I got rid of the flag and I just put a um, a globe, you know, an Earth,
0: planet Earth, planet Earth on there. Because <laughs> when
1: people said, "Well, where are you from?" I said, "I'm from Earth. Where are you from?" <laughs> Well, we're from the same place then. Shut up, you know. So, um, but uh, yeah, I mean that that whole Bentley experience was was obviously very cool. Driving for Bentley as a Bentley boy, mm. not many of them in the world. Uh, and and to finish on the podium in a one-two, um, although I I I was gutted after that race. I was so distraught. I felt like uh, having been with Panos, which, you know, for seven years and you six years, you're never going to win a, a, a Le Mans race with that car. So when the Bentley thing came up, it was like, this is my chance. Mm. This this is finally my chance to win Le Mans. Mm. I had a 50/50, cent, a 50-50 chance of winning Le Mans, and I got the wrong side of the 50. Um, and I drove across the line at the finish. i just finished second at Le Mans, and I felt nothing.
0: Really?
1: Felt nothing. Some of that was because I didn't feel like did myself justice or the team justice although my pace was not many people probably noticed but i knew Mm -hmm. you know um and and the fact that you know we were fast i mean we if we hadn't had the issues the other car had no issues all the way through the race one they did a brilliant job that the whole team and it was split the actual the bentley team was split in two the brits and the germans okay so you had the Audi influence yes. because we had their engines. Yeah. Um, the other car was run by by top Audi people, mm-hmm. and the, and we had the Brits on our side. And in qualifying, I was against Tom uh, Tom Kristensen, and up until the Porsche curves, I was. I was going to say about four, five tenths quicker than him. And then I just hit traffic. I couldn't get a lap in. So that really peed me off. Mm. The engineer actually gave me the sheet after. He said, you should keep that. <laughs> he was like, yeah, great. I didn't finish the lap, did I? And came in the pits because, you know, I just didn't get a chance. But I was, I was, we, were, we had a quick car. Um, and uh, we, we had a couple of battery changes. We, we lost 10 minutes, but we only lost by two laps or something. So we we actually, if we'd had a straight fight, we would have won. We had a a quicker car, We just had a better setup. Um, But that doesn't always win Le Mans. You know, you've got to have that perfect scenario, uh, which was a great lesson for me later on to help me win Le Mans in the future Mm -hmm. because uh, it's not just about being the quickest. It's about that whole team environment and the way you operate and watching watching that other side, how they they did it. And there was a few things that I, I was uncomfortable with the way our side of the team was operating mm-hmm. and I knew you know you can kind of you kind of can predict your future a bit if you just kind of watch what's going on now mm-hmm. and yeah we, we got the problems and um, the other guys just did a, the whole team over on that side they worked well together as a team as a unit you know Tom Tom was kind of leader mm-hmm. Um, the other two drivers, you know, Dindo and, and uh, Guy Smith, they they kind of fell in behind Tom and and kind of steered it on, um, and it was just, it was just I learned a lot from it, you know, watching Tom who's won Le Mans nine times or eight, eight times, whatever it is. Um,
0: and, you know, it was just really really good to watch uh, and learn. You know. And it's served you. I mean, for the, the three class wins that you had, the outright victory in, in 09, that's got a rank. I, I, I've been to that race as a spectator in 2015, and it's just mighty Le Mans. It's just such a special thing. And you, if you can, you, you have to go and stay awake for the full 24-plus hours and soak it all up. I mean, to win it is a massive thing for a driver, isn't
1: it? It is. I mean, what what was, think, for me... 2007 was the first time I won Mm. in a class there. Mm. Standing up on that podium, like I said, you see this this sea of people in front of you with all these flags all the different nationalities and your your car. Well, no, the winners, overall, winner cars on the bottom. But, Mm. but, you know, you've just won your class. And it's such an amazing feeling. Mm. And then we'd get off and then the guys who'd win overall would stand up on the page and you go "Geez, what does it feel like when you're up there winning overall mm. you know 2008 we again with Aston Martin the GT1 class and we win again and I, and, and at that point I, I, I would that's when I was really working harder with, with my team in my team environment to make sure that we had perfect races so that means everyone had a perfect mind leading into that race and during that race mm. and um whether it was my teammates, the mechanics, someone making the tea, it didn't matter who it was. They had to have that positive environment, uh, that mindset that, that bought into what we're trying to achieve. Mm. And we had 2007, 2008, two absolute perfect races. Mm. Our cars had the least amount of time in the pits out of everybody. That's how you win them mm. all you know. Um, and then 2009, unexpected racing in america for honda with the acura program and i'm at a test uh, financial markets crashing around us yeah. obviously yeah. and um i'm at sebring with honda for our very first test so i get up in the morning of the test and i look at my emails and there's a email from peugeot what is
0: that
1: <laughs> <laughs> I open it up and like to understand your contractual arrangements with with Honda, and uh, we'd like to know if you'd be interested in racing racing for us at Spa, at Le Mans. What? You know, it's like uh, right, right, okay. Mm.
0: <laughs> Shall I
1: call now? <laughs> Shall I call now? Yeah, exactly. hang on. Uh, they should be up. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, I ended up obviously doing the deal with 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 Peugeot and. Um, I'd say uh, all the experience that I had, I needed to draw upon for that for that win, um, and I say that because the court case that I was involved in during this period—so you know, sort of six, two thousand six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and eleven um in germany for fighting for the Brabham name Uh, 2009 was the kind of the peak stress for me i'm driving to le mans for the week and i'm on the phone to the lawyers screaming you know just raging about what what was going on and stuff like that and so my mindset again was not one of those races where i look back and go my mindset was wasn't wasn't in the place that it should have been. I was too distracted with all the court stuff and um, it, it, it was tiring, you know. And I was doing a lot of racing. I was I was um, racing in America and then I'd fly back to Europe and do a 30-hour test for Peugeot, then poof, back to another race. Then I'd be back for another 30-hour test and then I'd be back for another race, you know. We did three 30-hour tests from February till June with Peugeot. And I was racing in America and traveling and stuff like that. And, 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 and the court case, all going on in the background. Um, my wife had started up a shop in 2005 and obviously with the financial meltdown, everything slowed down there, so the pressure of that. And it was just, just got to me. And so I really had to draw on everything that I'd learned about teamwork, about all right, who's going to lead this team. Normally I would have led the team that was always around me. But I walked into Persia and realized straight away that's not me. That's Alex Verts. Mm-hmm. He's he's the guy. I gotta support him. Mm-hmm. So you've got to drop your ego and go, only way we're gonna make this work is if I support him. Mm-hmm. Mark Janay, pretty easy kind of going guy, um, just happy to fit in and do what he has to do, you know. Um and so it was it we really had to work as a team because you could see the other two cars it was a nightmare mm-hmm. political uh favoritism driver's egos out of control fo- all they were focusing on so before the races even started they're in big trouble yeah absolutely you, you you like i said you can start to predict the future when you start to see what goes on mm-hmm. now you know and i could see that they were going to run into problems just by the mindset of what was going on there mm-hmm. and i can, my mindset wasn't that great as far as my own personal side of it but in terms of making sure all the other elements are, are there you
0: make good choices, yeah.
1: you make good choices. Yeah. exactly yeah. so they were just making so many mistakes on the other side it was just you know just incredible um and the pressure to win for them you know they spent a lot of money and they hadn't won and a bit like the Bentley situation they were a little bit like that as well but worse so with with Peugeot mm-hmm. uh, I think just the pressure of, of winning was was really too much for them in a sense and, and it was all about who was the quickest and the drivers had to be the quickest and they wouldn't think about the bigger pitch it was always well I've done that lap time that means if I've done that lap time I'm going to please my my paymasters I'm going to continue with my job and it's like you're focusing on the wrong things yeah. you know so Little, we, we were actually car three. We were there just to be there more than anything. Um, our, our engineer that we were given was a rally engineer, never done the Mans. He had chicken pox that week, so we never saw him leading up to the race. He came on the Friday with spots all over him. Um, and so we, as a, a collective experienced group of drivers, did our own stuff to get to the race in in the shape that we really wanted it. We'd noticed that um, uh, that people were running over kerbs in certain places and damaging the front splitter. You could see the, the sides of the front splitters were, were breaking. Okay. And we made a decision, we're not going to do that. Yes, it's slower.
0: Off the kerbs, though?
1: Off the kerbs, mm-hmm. yeah. Just There's some kerbs you can, but there were kerbs that were damaging. Um, and, of course, the other cars were fast. And we ended up in a situation where, you know, you normally at Le Mans you're racing and you've got a fuel light that comes on. So that either tells you have got to come in or you've got another lap, depending on where you've got that light coming on with, mm-hmm. with the amount of fuel you have. And in the race, we did the first couple of stints. Come, you know, I can remember my first stint going along and the, the light comes on, yep, right, come in. Blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden we were told to come in a lap earlier hang on, if we get in a lap earlier, we're going to be screwed further down the road. Mm. You know, we're going to have to do another pit stop. Um, then it was a problem with the brakes, so you're going to have to make it, you know, be easier on the brakes. And what was happening was we were leading and then the other guys would, would catch us after changing front splitters because they were breaking them. They'd get ahead of us and then they'd break them again and they'd come back again. So it was, it was like as if we were being held back to make sure... Car 8 was going to win, which was the French team, mm. the drivers. Um, so there was all this politics going on and, and you know, the, our, everyone in our society, the mechanics, the drivers, could see what was going on. It was just, like, pretty blatantly obvious to us. But, it, you know, they were producing bad karma, you know what I mean? And, and they just kept tripping up, making the wrong decisions, tripping up. And we just made the right decisions, the right call. We had a perfect race. We never touched the car. We had the least amount of time in the pits. So that was three races in a row. I had perfect
0: races. Yeah. Yeah. 5.5 litre, mid-mounted. I think it only weighed 930 kilos, that that car, the 908. What was it like to drive?
1: Uh, I think the the most impressive thing was the engine, the diesel. Yep. Yeah. (coughs) Having- Oh, a- pff, talky. God <laughs> dear, I drove out of the pits in my first test at Barcelona, and I and I just gunned it out of the pits, and I went, holy shit! It, it, the the force it was giving you behind your back. By time I got to the end of the first into the first corner for my outlet, the smile on my face, I thought I can win. Will with, with this thing? That well, was that was straight that away, was straight away. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And I I'd, I'd been, I mean, it was a bold thing for for. Peugeot to do because because mm. they just brought in a competitor. Mm. I was racing against them in America in the Honda program. Yeah. So like at Sebring, we were competitors. Um, and actually, when I went to have the meeting uh, with the guys first time after I got the call, I'm sitting in in the uh, the office, um, and the head engineer Bruno looks at me and he goes. Tell us why you think you should be here.
0: What question? <laughs> yeah, you know, it was,
1: it was literally like you're a competitor. Why, why, why do you think you should be here? And I said, well, and I just kind of went back and I said, I tell you what, why don't you go and ask the teams and ask them how professional I am? Because mm-hmm. I said, what well, what goes on here stays here, and what goes on stays there. Yeah. Um, and I just looked him straight straight in the eye when I said it. And he just looked at me, and he looked over to Sergio. Went, okay, <laughs> that was it. Yeah, so yeah, <laughs> got enough of that. <laughs> yeah, so enough of that. Um, and, and it worked out fine because you know the Peugeot was a different beast to what we had in America. We just haven't didn't have the engine power. It was a new car, and we were nowhere near as competitive as what the Peugeot was. Uh, but you know, the, you're you're, you're two manufacturers so could have easily said hey they were doing this mm. and what was great was no one in my team no one at Honda asked Us. me a question mm. never asked me a question and likewise you know what I mean so it was the perfect environment I kept my mouth shut I did my job did my job in America no one asked me "Oh, what, what? so tell me
0: what they did and there was none of that okay. so it was very professional above board yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: great success for you too mate to win one of the, the, you know, the races on the planet just before we move into the fact that you you Gathered back the family name. You're building the, you know, Brabham Road cars are a reality, which I think is just awesome. I just want to touch on one car for a second because you mentioned it before, and I've spoken to Greg Murphy about this in the podcast, and that is the Panos. Yeah. Uh, you know, he raced it at the, I think, race of a 1,000 years in, in Adelaide, yeah. I mean, for people that aren't familiar with it, it's kind of this Batmobile-looking thing, 6-litre V8 power. I mean, it was a beast. I, I can vividly recall, I think, seeing you race it at Laguna Seca in maybe 1998 or something along those lines. It was just it was so different to the other cars, but this infectious look and sound it was amazing, wasn't it? It was. Great little team. Very weird car to drive. <laughs> Why? Well,
1: I, th- I, th- I think because I mean, you got used to it after a while, it felt normal. And then, we actually, when I went back to a, what I call a normal f- car with the engine in the back, that felt weird, you know. Yeah. So, it's what you get used to. But when, when the program first started, I was actually going to be a McLaren driver uh, leading up to that program. Um, what happened there? I, I was involved, oh, weird. It was, it was, I was involved with the development of the long tail McLaren in, in 90 end of 96, beginning of 97. And it was like, well, okay, what do we, what, you know, what's the program for this year? Because I'd won the All Japan GT Championship in a McLaren in 96. Mm-hmm. So I was still part of that program. And the BMW link continued from BTCC because of uh, BMW engines. So that helped me to become a McLaren driver in that program, work with Gordon Murray and, and all that sort of stuff. So, um when it came to uh, kind of negotiating what that deal would look like, I mean, typical at that time was like, well, we, we don't have any money, mate. <laughs> We're not paying you. Mm. It's like, what? It's like, well, that ain't going to work, is it? Mm. And and Dave Price, who's a mate of mine and you know ran successful race teams, kept bloody ringing me saying, <laughs> I want you to come and have a look at this thing called the Panos. Because I remember reading Autosport magazine, and they had a little piece about this thing called the Panos, front engine, blah blah blah, American V eight, blah, blah. and I remember reading it, going, Phew, "Never see me in that thing," <laughs> you know. <what> I mean? <laughs> well, you did, um, and and throughout that kind of period of negotiation, I got. Dave Price saying, you know, come and have a look at the car. Come on. I went and had a look at the car. And, and actually, from a car point of view, okay, it was weird with the front, but all the suspension and everything were racing suspension compared to kind of more road stuff that I was used to. And I thought, well, okay, well, that's going to be better. Mm-hmm. I don't know about the engine. Pricey said, I'm just not sure about the engine yet, mm-hmm. you know. It was a brand-new program, so it's going to have lots of problems anyway. Um, and then um, I was on holiday don't know where we were. I was with Lisa and, and we were on holiday and, and Pricey's going, look, you know, I need an answer, I need an answer. And I was getting nowhere with McLaren. Mm-hmm. So I thought, I'm going to do it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go for the panels thing, you know. So I went, rang up Pricey and said, oh, I'm in. You know, great, got, boom, Pricey done, easy. Poof. Then I rang up McLaren and I said, look, just let you know, I've, I've done a deal somewhere else because, you know, if that's what you're offering, someone else is offering me a better deal on am I'm out, but thank you very much for the journey. It was great. You know, really enjoyed it. See you later. Next thing I know, the next day, I get a message from from Lisa's mum that a fax has come through from McLaren, all of a sudden offering me a deal with money. You know what I mean? It was just, (laughs) and I made, you know, I shook my hands with Dave. That was it. So I had to go back and say, too late, done my deal. You know, once I've agreed, I don't go back. So that's it. Mm -hmm. So that's how that kind of, came about yeah so yes it was and there was you know six years of it was last year like I said didn't go well it all started to go downhill but um up until that point like I said you know that that car just should not have done as well as it did yes. Yes. and in 99 we turned up Le Mans and uh with the new regulations and we cut the roof off and, and turn it into a a, a proper open top yes. prototype for P1 yes. Went to pre-qualifying, because in, in, you had to pre-qualify in those days at Le Mans, a few weeks before the main game. And um, I ended up P2 overall. I should have been P1, because the last chicane, I took the chicane like a good boy. Everyone else was going straight, and I was thinking about my time being disallowed, because they said, you'll disallow your time, but they didn't. Everyone was plop, plop, straight through. So I, I lost time there, but I was two tenths off Martin Brundle in the, in the works Toyota. So I would have I would have been quickest, which would have caused an absolute outrage out of everyone. Um, and you know, Mercedes—that was when Mark Webber was racing Mercedes, and he flipped yeah. up in the air and all that sort of stuff. And they were two seconds behind us. And um, you know, everyone's going, "What the hell's this thing? Just turned up like that and being that quick? You know, we had a, we had Yates engines. This we had stonking qualifying engine. We were—I think we were doing.
0: This is down Mulsanne, which Moulson, is the fine, fine, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. It's Moulson. I think we were doing something like um, about 340k, 3, 340, 3, 345k three yeah. three down the straight, yeah. Uh, because you know, when we got to the race, um, we had to put the race engine in there, and it was just dead slow and thirst, thirsty. So you're never going to wind them on like that, but um, but yeah, I mean. You know, what a what a great little experience to go through with a little team and this odd-looking car and
0: and stirring it right in there with the manufacturers. Yeah, love it. It was a beast. I could sense in, in you before when you touched on it that the, the whole bid to get back the, the Brabham Racing name, the Brabham name, was uh, an object of obsession, understandably, um, but one that I guess really took a toll personally and professionally. How much so?
1: Um, Well, obviously, I thought about um, when I was 40, still in my prime in my career, but I'm thinking 10 years ahead, thinking, okay, what the hell am I going to do? We've got this name, Brabham. I thought I did. Mm -hmm. Got this name, Brabham. um, And I used to go down the pits and look at all the racing names, and I go down the high street and look at the brands, and I'm going, what are we missing? You know, there's something not right here, because, Mm. you know, they're racing names should be brands as well. So how do I turn an iconic racing name into a brand? That was my kind of thinking. Mm -hmm. Uh, Something to create like something for for the family, a legacy moving forward. All those things were kind of going through my head. And then, you know, cut a long story short, sat down with dad, this is what I want to do. Yeah, great. What's your trademarks? Let's have a look. Put in an application. Got knocked back because someone in Germany came back and said, I own Brabham and I own Brabham Racing. So that was a bit of a shock, mm-hmm. and it was like, well, okay, what do I do? You know, so I spoke to Dad about it. He we, we was pissed off as well, um, and he had one option really, was to try and get the name back. So, um, just as we kind of headed into battle, Dad said, "Look, I can't, I can't do this." Mm-hmm. Um, I, what I didn't realise at the time, he did say he was in a court case at that time in Australia and got nasty, got really nasty, had threats and all sorts of things, which I didn't know at the time. So at the time I, th- I was a bit pissed off that he pulled out. So it's like, well, okay, if you're going to pull out, I want whatever trademarks you've got. If I win this case, it's mine and I'm going to take it forward, you know. Um, and that's what I did. And it took seven years to, to go through that process um, in the in the court, in Koblenz in Germany, Uh we won the first court case, then they appealed, then it went to the higher court, and it just kind of went on and on and on. And, and emotionally and financially, by the end of it, I was done, basically. My bracing had stopped in terms of full time, so it was end of 2012. Christmas Day, 2012, email comes through, application for your trademarks have now gone through. Fantastic. You know what I mean? Yeah. I got there, uh, we went to the auto sports show, and um, I'm, we're going to do a press release to say that we've won, won the court case and the name's now back under the family control. And I'm sitting in the car park, my little golf, little red golf, thinking I've got 300 quid left in the bank. Far I, out. I've got no, no job, mm-hmm. but i got a name. What the hell do I do now? <laughs> so um, it was tough you know from a uh like i said emotionally financially yes it was great to to get the name but i couldn't i just couldn't get that excited about it because you know i had too many other problems to Mm. to try and get through um and then you know i picked up a few drives that year um that helped obviously keep keep things going but you know um it was just getting harder and harder to to survive and you know you've got you've got to try and create the next thing and you know without the money and the investment to do that so then I had to go and find the money and the investment and the partners and you know up until that point I'd never been in the outside world I've only been in this c- cocoon yeah. you know being a racing driver yeah. I stepped out into the into the real world it was like that it was like going back to formula it was like the lion's den it's like what the hell is all this about you know um and then because you don't know well, i didn't understand so much about the outside world in, in in business and finance and you know like raising money or talk. you know all these conversations i would never had before so then you start beating yourself up and say well, why don't you know mm you should know that you know then your confidence goes so all that stuff i'd done in gaining more and more confidence and clarity in my mind and everything leading up to that point just all fell to a massive collapse um and i just had to try and pick myself up and just persevere and and um yeah it wasn't easy wasn't easy for quite some time uh we ended up having to move house and just you know cutting all our costs down and kind of you know trying to trying to find a way forward you know find the right partners and you meet, have so many meetings all oh, they all sound great mm. oh great name yeah we could do this we could do that but then the only way i could navigate myself through it was okay maybe not have the experience but but what's common sense tell me mm. what's my gut tell me that's the only way i could get through mm. And I was learning about all that stuff. The amount of times I use Google, I go, what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> you know, what what'd they say? What does that mean? You know what I mean? It's just—it was just a, a, a whole new world to me. Yeah. Um, so I had to re- rebuild everything: my confidence and, and my, uh, my finances, and find the right partners. And so um, there was four years of wilderness, basically, uh, depressed. You know. Suppressed because you'd been a racing driver for a long time and you know, John Bow talks about yes, you know depression and things like that and, and it um
0: so that was a reality for you.
1: Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Um because you you get lost. You you're not you're not in that world anymore, the adrenaline's not pumping, your brain's not filled with all the things that it needs to be filled to keep all that in, in check that you've had all the all that time. Um and you get you you naturally go into a massive low. Mm. Never, I'm having no money and not no job, and you know not knowing how you're going to create the next chapter in your life, you know, and then you've got family issues, you know, everyone's feeling it, and there's arguments, and you know you go through that whole spiral that that um, don't want to ever go that way again, yeah. but you know what I mean, but um, and it's and it was it was oh, I I hit. I hit rock bottom in that sense, you know, so I've just had to try and find a way of getting
0: through that. And yeah. To be credited, mate, because you've done that and the BT 62 is a reality splashed across, you know, magazines here in Australia, Australia very proudly has its own supercar. Again, there is a, a hub of industry in, in Adelaide where, you know, we've had um, motor vehicle plant closures in this country, but, but you're embracing local industry and, this is a fast, sexy-looking car. It's real. It's here.
1: Congratulations. Yeah, thanks. I mean, you know, telling the story and then thinking where we are today, it's it, I, even I go, wow, okay, well, that's been quite a journey. Yeah. Um, but worth it, you know. I mean, the perseverance to, to get to this point, um, you know, I knew eventually I would find the right people to do this because um, it's a great... Name um, it, it's known around the world it's got such brand advocacy mm. there's a love for it you know um, the love for Jack a lot you know it's just it's this there's, there's something really special about it and I knew there was an opportunity if I got with the right people and then when i when I did go to Adelaide and I met up with the guys there the fusion capital and uh, private equity group and looked at what they were doing and the vision and and you know with what I wanted to do it' was just like this makes sense. Like it feels, I said, it feels right, it mm-hmm. feels right mm-hmm. and it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Let's do it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So um, to, to sit here now after that phase of the journey, having built the car, surprised the world with it last year in May at Australia House, um, was very emotional standing up there talking, you know, about the journey and Jack and... and um what we've just created and what we've launched, I mean half my speech was in tears, you know so uh, it was all that all that baggage that all came out, you know um, and then you know we've just continued to grow and get the car out there to get people um, aware of what we're doing. Like you said, you know, Adelaide uh, and Australia of have, have, have healthy manufacturing, in there and of course when the auto manufacturers disappeared it left a void which was the spark for fusion to do something because they were involved in supplying parts to the manufacturers so they were going to get hit as well as you know there's a chain reaction all the way through the industry um and you know it was like great great story in terms of full circle we you know jack had started here went over to overseas dominated the world you know Myself, my brothers all went overseas and raced, mm-hmm. you know. And now come we've done all of that, we got the name back and we've come back to Australia mm-hmm. where it all started and we're starting again. Yeah. It's the next chapter. It's the next part of the Brabham story. Um, and, you know, to, to, to see that Brabham BT-62 sitting there or on track, um, the seeing the reaction and the comments from everybody... About the one, the brand coming back, the look of the car, the sound of the car, the, the, the just the project, the amount of people that want to get involved in what we're doing, because it's such a fascinating and interesting, stimulating story, mm. um, and it's it's about putting Aussie-made stuff
0: on the map, mm. you know. So um, it's 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 very cool, and and you know, as you say, Aussie ingenuity behind it, but something that looks. Um, you know uh, globally so sharp in in uh, sports car or supercar terms what are we talking here I think it's 515 kilowatt about 700 horsepower and it weighs less than a thousand kilos I mean it's mighty isn't it
1: yeah I mean that's that's where the performance comes from is mm. the power to weight mm. uh, and we've got 1200 kilos of downforce as well so 5.4 liter Brabham v8 Um the fact that the car is under a ton there's yeah. not not many of these cars are under a ton in fact I don't think there's, there's there is any so 972 kilograms dry weight uh 1200 kilos of downforce um you know it's 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 a pure track car um and obviously when we launched uh people thought oh, great love this but i'd like to drive it on the road mm, okay so we'll have to look at that <laughs> so we looked at it and we can you know we're, we're going to be doing a road legal version of this vehicle for Australia and, and in Europe so um, that's created more interest and of course we broke the lap record at Bathurst uh, so the car's got a bit of fame to it and um, yeah it's all, all it's quite interesting because it kind of for me on my personal journey it was like as if if you imagine yourself going up a, a mountain with a massive like boulder behind you and you're, you're trying to get yourself over the top you know um and you're you know you're you're halfway up and your your legs are shaking because you know all the shit's happening around you and and that's how it felt and then as soon as this this kind of deal happened it's like the the boulder fell the other side and the momentum now is just racing you know what i mean and there's so much good stuff happening so when i think back of of that 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 journey and, and you know what you put into life is what you get back. There's a lot coming my way you know uh, and the family's way and you know my partners in, in Adelaide they've, they've gone through it they've had the vision they've stretched themselves they've gone into something new um, they've invested and you know together this whole thing is just just skyrocketing now you know which which not skyrocketing but you know it's just the men- momentum now is really starting to gain.
0: Most definitely the aura around it from people just talking in the streets to you know you, you touched before on Bathurst you and your brother Jeff have had success at Bathurst it's an iconic place, to think that you and Luke Yulden were blasting around there early in 2019. And what was the lap? The lap was a 158.69, a sub two-minute lap, quickest we've seen around the mountain by a car like that. Amazing. Yeah, I mean, we knew
1: knew when we built it, um, it was the goal was to beat the two-minute mark. Mm. And of course, everywhere we've tested, we've broken lap records here in Australia. It's like, okay. And we're not, we weren't even trying. Mm. So we thought Going to Bathurst, we didn't have many laps at Bathurst. We had 15 minutes on the Thursday just to kind of really get a feel for it. And I, I didn't drive, but you know, Luke, Luke drove because he, you know, he's more up to speed than I am um, in terms of the track and 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 being a current driver as well. And it, we really went there to do a demonstration, but secretly it was like, you know, what we could we could bang in a lap time here. Yeah. Um, so we, we gathered as much information as we could and then obviously went to um, just 10 minutes on, on the Saturday to, to have a crack. Um, so to see it go under the two minutes like that, which it did before, but it didn't quite break the record of, of the Audi um, when they took all the restrictors out, <laughs> um, which is fine. And, you know, to, to do a 58.6... Was, was felt really good for, for not just for me but for the whole team who have put so much effort into it um
0: it was a, it was a nice reward for for everybody it means a lot in the automotive industry and the racing industry here you can't talk too much about it um i know but the other thing that is happening at the same time is a movie and it is, it is due for – I think some people prior to the, the Grand Prix here may have been treated to a little special viewing of it. Tell us what you can uh, about that project. Uh, well,
1: I've got to be careful what I say but because yeah. um, uh, it's not not out for release yet. But, yeah, I got, got a chance with, um, you know, uh, uh, let's say investors and people involved in the movie from, you know, obviously financially, emotionally, yeah. partners – um, who who have been part of Aurora Films' journey, mm-hmm. and uh, you know we as a family have supported it once we got to know what what they were doing. Um, and you can imagine, <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was talking to Akosh Armont uh, who 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 is the guy behind it, and I found out through Mark Weber and Anne uh, that someone was doing something about Jack. Mm-hmm. So I managed to. Kind of well, okay. Who the hell's this? Because like I just gone through seven years of, of bloody trying to get the name under control, and someone's doing something. You know, so I didn't quite understand it. Yeah. Um, and so I reached out to them, and you know, oh yeah, no, we're really sorry. We we're going to come to you when we were ready, and all that sort of stuff. And it's like, yeah, 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 you know. Uh, so we had a Skype call, first Skype call. I've got my arms crossed. I'm kind of looking at them and with a with a silent look, and. Uh, Akos Ar- and, and Anthony Waddington's kind of looking at each other like oh my god we're talking to someone of the family and he looks pissed you <laughs> <laughs> <It's a good laughs> know it's not a good start <laughs> I said alright who are you and what do you want what are you doing hmm. you know <laughs> um, but by time we finished the conversation I thought wow okay we've got someone here who's they you know young ambitious and they're they want to tell the story of jack mm. um you know his story should be told it's such an amazing yeah. part of our history here in australia um and and abroad you know because obviously he was successful over there and to to have something like that that could show and demonstrate and carry that legacy forward uh, you know it was like well we could do nothing but support it mm. um so i helped bring in you know all my contacts and you know i got him in, in front of jackie stewart i got a, Got him in front of Ron Dennis and Bernie Eccleston and blah blah blah. You know, so the yeah, was
0: excellent. Then, if that's the case, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. So uh, we we saw we
0: saw um, a preview of it, and um, I, I don't want to say too much, but, but I wait with interest. I can't wait to see it. It's a, it's a, I mean, it's a great story. It, I mean to your dad was incredible mate i mean monaco winner three time formula 1 world champion during a very special era for the sport and a and a feat that may never will probably never ever be beaten again to to win as a as a manufacturer um you've driven some of his old cars tell us a little bit about that and and they were brave men back then like the Cooper climax for example and some amazing cars but very different to now well they're either brave or stupid <laughs> <laughs> i mean yeah,
1: I mean, you think sitting in a tubular chassis with fuel tanks strapped to the side of you mm. as the sides of the car um, with no safety mm. protection or anything like that. It's its no wonder they died back then. Mm. So, you know, driving some of these old cars, uh, you do as a driver who's driving current stuff, look at it and go, oh dear, you know, this doesn't feel very safe. <laughs> but back then they were the state-of-the-art stuff, so they never thought about it. Um, but you know you're you're going back in time. You know you just you hold the steering wheel. You just sense like you're you're back back then as as they felt as drivers. Mm. You know which is which is a great great experience. Um, you know this this weekend at um, at, Albert Park, yeah. at Albert Park at the Grand Prix. Um, Sam and I are going to be driving two of the old cars, the Cooper T fifty one that he raced, that Jack won his first World Championship in. One of the cars there. Um, and he's going to be driving that and I'm driving the Repco Brabham BT19 which is the car that he won the world championship in 1966 as you said, the only driver to win a world championship with a car of his own construction so that will be a very special moment mm. um, the BT62 will be on track on Thursday morning doing some hot laps um, so yeah, we've had the, the Brabham movie premiere we've got the hot laps we're going to be leading the driver's parade uh, so, and of course, you know, it's
0: the, the, the Jack problem trophy, yeah. you know, for, for the winner of the Formula One. So it's pretty cool. Very, very cool. Awesome to have you, your son, Sam, out on track there with you. And I think um, you may have said it in your answer there a minute ago. Forgive me if I'm doubling up here, but it's the first time those two cars have been on track together. Is that correct? I think so, yeah. I, I can never, I don't remember the two
1: actually ever being side by side because they've been owned by different owners in different countries. Mm. So, I'm pretty sure they've not been together. I don't want to be completely, yeah. Yeah. you know, someone, some historian yeah. might say, oh, no, but here's a picture. Great, show us a picture. Yeah. But um, yeah, I, I could never, I don't remember it. So it'd be, I think, quite a unique moment in time to have two championship winning cars
0: like that sitting together. It's power to the finish here. And you touched on a little something which I think is phenomenal. Third-generation names in the Brabham family, you know, doing some racing. Jeff's son Matthews raced at the Indy 500. Your son's done more recently, Carrera Cup in in, uh, in GB there. Favourite racetrack for you or favourite piece of road that David Brabham enjoys a drive on? Got to be Le Mans, doesn't
1: it? Oh, anyway, I've always sort of – not always, but you talk about the mindset, mm. okay. So I ended up having certain favourite tracks and not so favourite tracks in my mind Mm -hmm. and I would do better on the ones I liked than the ones I didn't like. Um, I think most people do. Mm -hmm. If you really love something like that, you just find that extra bit. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I made a a call very early on, no favourites. A track is a track, just go out there and do your job and enjoy every track every track has something different about it um as far as an event you know le monde as you touched on is the most incredible experience for for a driver for a mechanic for team team personnel to the fans it's it's something you actually can't describe you've got to say if you want to know what le monde's about just go you've got to go you've got to go and experience it because it it, it the the atmosphere is electric it really is you got so much history um that's attached to that place you've got 250,000 people around the track who go there because they love the event mm. they love the history they love watching all the cars they love you know the the manufacturers have been there all the drivers have been there um, the movies that have been done at Le Mans and stuff like that, it's its quite an experience. But to know what that experience is like, you've got to have the experience, so you've got to go there.
0: Probably not something you're doing at the moment because you, you have the Grail car in some respects in the beautiful BT62, but is there a little resto project in time that David Brabham might like to do, a little something that you've either got in the garage now that you're working on or that you would like to get hold of and restore in the future
1: Um, I would say in in my career I wasn't really into the historic stuff Mm -hmm. just doing what I was doing Um, and then over over the last sort of Six, ten, five, six to ten years mm. just started to notice them more <laughs> you know what I mean um, And we are getting old <laughs> yeah and they, exactly and then you know going to places like Goodwood um, amazing mm. yeah good, Goodwood Festival Speed or, or Goodwood Revival yeah. and you're sitting there and you're, you're watching or you're even racing in these old cars and you just you see so many beautiful old cars with so much history attached to them mm. uh, you know the history is what makes them mm. Um, You know, a car is a car, but what's the history? What's the brand? What's, you know, what's that experience like when you look at that vehicle? And I have to say, you know, my interest in these old cars has definitely increased. Uh, So one day I will start to, to look and see what I can buy or restore or something like that. Yeah.
0: Nice. One final one that I always ask on Rusty's Garage of any, any, automotive person or race driver the things that motorists do on our roads that drive you mad and i can clearly tell from your mindset that you know in the right frame um you know good things happen in in a racing sense does that apply to to the road in some respects about being calm and patient and things like that i think it does
1: yeah um i as you, as we talked on or we touched on very early in our conversation, I was a maniac on the roads in Australia. Um, how I survived, how I kept a licence, I have no idea. I think it was more about survival than anything else. Going to England in 1988, I don't know what happened, but as soon as I arrived there, I just was a completely different driver on the road. Completely different driver and have been ever since. Yeah. So... um P, a lot of my mate, racing mates when we were racing it's like don't let Brabs drive because you know we well, well, it's going to take forever to get there you know what I mean and they'd end up getting in the car and, and just driving recklessly and scaring the hell out of me because I'm not a very good passenger but in terms of um, me driving and you know, I've had like two, two um, speeding tickets in my life and I think the first one came only ten years ago wow you know so I, I and because then you have kids and you see how people drive on the road and what I think if you're asking me that question about what drives you insane yeah. it's it's people driving too fast on the roads where you're you're in a built up area and there's potentially kids in that area you know what I mean that, as a parent you you and you've seen them go past quick and they, and you know you, you look at them go past and you know they've normally got a, a loud noise coming out out the exhaust or yeah. whatever and they they think they're a racing driver or something, I don't know. So anyway, they they drive off and, you know, they're obviously getting an experience of what they want in in that vehicle. Uh, but you look out and you go, bet they don't have kids. <laughs> you know, yes. it's like... Um, Perspective would be different. Yeah, and I think um, we haven't got it right because the... The, the education around driving up until the point you're allowed to go and drive is very limited, yeah. very limited. And if if we had a, a, a longer program for people that, uh, you know, even if it was like a 10-year program where every year they had to go back and just improve on their driving and their awareness mm-hmm. and, and so forth like that, we would have so many less accidents out there. Mm-hmm. But you'd have to make that program push them into areas on, in a safe environment that shows them that that where the danger comes from you know it's not just what goes on outside it's
0: what's going on inside yeah. you know. It's been fantastic to sit and talk to you mate thank you on a busy Grand Prix week for, for your time one of the few Aussies to win the Le Mans 24 hour. Your brother, Jeff, did that to success. I mean, 24 starts in Formula One, success at Bathurst, an incredible record in sports cars. Congrats and all the best as a constructor. Lots of Aussies are very excited about this project. Thank you. Thank you, mate. And when we go to
1: Le Mans in Abrabham, you come with us, mate. I'll be there.
0: If any of the issues raised in this episode have affected you, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. That's 13 11 14. Lifeline is a national charity providing all Australians experiencing a personal crisis access to 24-hour support and suicide prevention services. Rusty's Garage is written and presented by me, Greg Rust. Series producer and editor is Alex Mitchell. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener